and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. Here, uh, as always, talk about stuff, and we're mostly weekly this time. Sure, so I'm happy. It's been like yeah. nine days, so, you know. Yeah. It's good enough. A week is seven days, Tom. I know, but it's close. Okay. It's going to be like, never mind. Yeah, okay. It's probably best not to like think about the timing of the podcast, because that just makes everyone sad. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it really, it's, we should have just renamed it forever ago. We should I know, have just taken the weekly out. But now we can't. Now we're stuck. We'll figure it out. Anyway, yeah, so we are here to talk about stuff. This week, as promised uh, on a previous episode, we kind of, over the last couple weeks, we've had a lot of things to talk about, so we kind of split these episodes up. So last time on the show, if you heard it, we talked about Bloodborne, and we talked about different pieces of video game and movie news and the new 3DS, and all kind of big grab bag episode. Yes. This is going to be a little more focused. Uh, Today we are reviewing Persona 3, the movie, number two, Midsummer Night's Dream, fresh from Japan. Yes. Kind of the Blu-ray is. The movie came out about a year ago. Just came out on Blu-ray a couple weeks ago, and we got the set in here. It's pretty cool. We'll talk about the Blu-ray set. We'll talk about the movie, which we just watched. Uh, that'll have spoilers and everything, so you know, try to see the movie before you listen to this, and I'm sure you can find it now. It's been out for a couple weeks. Uh, Sean, quick, as we always do when we talk about a yes. movie, spoiler-free reaction. Thumbs up, thumbs down? Uh, yeah, definitely thumbs up. Yeah. It's, you know, like if you saw the first one, and you really liked the first one like this, I think is... It's maybe better. It's like they're very kind of different movies. This one's maybe a little bit uneven in some places, but the stuff, the the material that it tackles is a lot more interesting material from the game, and so and the way it tackles it is is very uh, skillful. So I would agree yeah. with that almost completely. Yes, uh, really, really fascinating movie. Yeah. to talk about definitely, and if nothing else proves that these are succeeding. As movies on their own terms and deserve to be discussed that way. Yeah. Because at a certain point I was sitting here watching the movie and just thinking, this is great filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Whatever else yeah. you want to say, the, 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 it's animation, but the camera work and the angles and the, yeah. the scripting, all of it is... It's just, is, it's use of animation yeah. is really phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. So definitely a lot to talk about there. So this will be one of our fa- you know favorite kinds of episodes to do, a Persona yeah. episode. So we'll talk about Persona, but if you don't play Persona, one, start. It's it's never too late to start. It's true. It is occasionally too busy to start, because those games yeah. will take you a long time to play. Without a doubt. But yes, uh, play Persona, watch the movies, all good stuff. But for now, let's talk about some other things. So Sean, uh, we're going to talk about a couple little news items and little things like that. Talk about a little bit of website stuff. Uh, so yeah, let me start there really quick. All right. So this podcast obviously hosted by my website, www.jonathanlack.com. If you've been going there lately, I have started... Updating it again a little bit more. The first couple months of this year, I just didn't have time, and there wasn't a lot to write about. Mm-hmm. So mostly it was just the podcast, and then for a month there, it was yeah, <laughs> mostly just the podcast. Isn't really anything remarkable. For I know how we do um, these, but you know, in the last week, actually, a ton of stuff came up that I wanted to write about. So first off was Furious Seven, right? Really yeah. great fucking movie. I know there's a large probability that whoever's listening to this, you've seen it, because it's made all the money. Sure, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so pretty amazing for a film franchise in its seventh entry and 14th year to be breaking its own records by, like, a margin of 1.5. Yeah. But, I mean, like, the Fast and Furious movies kind of really exploded with the fifth one, right? Like, yeah, well, they yeah. had, like, their fandom, and people watched and enjoyed them, for the most part, up till that point, but... Yeah, well, it was the fourth one, which I did not see in theaters. That one did, like, $70 million opening in April, and that surprised everyone, including yeah. people who made it. So then they said, all right, well, Fast Five, let's go for an even bigger audience, and they did, and yeah, it's been 
exponential yeah. since then. But yeah, it's it's a fascinating, weird series to talk about yes, because of that. Yeah. But Furious Seven is great. It's if it's not the best one in the series, it would be second best that or Fast Five, and. You know, it's just so impressive, the stuff it does. And I was just kind of movie where I was sitting there with a big stupid grin on my face the entire movie until the last ten minutes. And then what they do to send off the Paul Walker character, uh, oh, right. because that actor died. Brilliant. Just just nothing short of brilliant, okay. what they what they came up for with that. And tear-jerking, definitely. Which I had, have not previously associated with the yeah, Fast and Furious not, movies. Yeah, tear-jerking is not like when they do the... The big like ads on TV. That's not one of the critics' quotes that I expect. To come no, tear jerking. Yeah, but hey, you know everyone loves this movie, and it's kind of fun to have a a big like blockbuster out there that I don't feel has any controversy around it. People mm-hmm. just really like it. People are going to see it, and no one there's no guilt about it. You know, there's no weird discussions going on. It's just it's everyone's kind of on the same page. This is a really great movie. So I wrote a piece on that. There's some spoilers at the end, but they are noted, so you could read it before you see the movie if you want, or afterwards because it kind of discusses everything. So there's that. Uh, this final season of Mad Men has started up, and as always, do my weekly reviews of that. I don't really have the time right now to do those Mad Men weekly reviews, but I am making the time because I love that show so much, and I would feel bad if I didn't get to write about the final season. Yeah, exactly. This is the last yeah. season. Like, if you give up now, that would just right. look kind of pathetic. Yeah, so, no, definitely the premiere was interesting. Uh, we're recording this on a Saturday. I'm not sure when the episode will go out, but obviously episode two... Uh, be reviewing that tomorrow night, Sunday night, and uh, if you're not familiar with this, Mad Men airs on Sundays on AMC, and then at, at 8, and my reviews usually go up around 11 or midnight, takes me a couple hours to get those out, and some come faster than others, so we'll see, I did that, and then uh, my favorite show of this year so far, which is another AMC series, Better Call Saul, which is a spinoff from Breaking Bad, finished its first season last week, <laughs> And I wasn't, again, I wasn't really planning on it, but I really had so much to say about this series. I sat down the other night to write a piece about it, and it wound up being 5,000 words long. It was a whole season of TV to talk about. Yeah. So anyway, it's a nice long essay. Um, how I many, really how many episodes are in that season? Ten. Okay, yeah, because I, I, I felt like that show just started like it a kinda week ago did, or something. Especially because they did the first two on like a Sunday and a Monday, okay. so it only was nine weeks. Um, so yeah, like only three months. I thought I like fell into a time warp or something. No. I was like, has that show been out for like 20 weeks? Like no. what has been going on? Yeah, 10 episodes first season. The, the next one is going to be 13 episodes. I think they just didn't have time to make like a full length season. But they made a great season. The title of my piece is Why I Already Love Better Call Saul Than I Ever Liked Breaking Bad. So there you go. That's kind of spoiling my thesis there. But that is my thoughts on this show. I, I got through a lot of episodes thinking that but not really saying it because i was like maybe it's just recency bias and shit like that and then i hit the ninth episode and the tenth and i was like no i i just flat out like this show better it's impossible to say which one is a better show because Mm -hmm. breaking bad is has 62 episodes in six years and we've had that for a while yeah we don't you know better call Saul could go anywhere but just as of now this is a kind of show i feel like i like more and i think the stuff they're doing is so interesting it's such a great season of tv um, so yeah, it, I'm really, I'm happy to have it. And I was happy to write that piece because there's so much interesting stuff in that series to talk about. So yeah. And, and I don't know, maybe because Madman will be off this time next year, I might add Better Call Saul to the rotation next year for like stuff, but I'm trying not to think about that because I will be done with college by then. Yeah. You don't know what's happening yeah. now. Like America could be destroyed in I one know. year, Jonathan. You can't make plans that far ahead. Are you feeling that too? I'm not trying to think about my life after yeah. that. It's just, it's, it's. <laughs> Like, just don't assume that the world will still exist. Right, yeah, that's probably good. That's my policy. 
I like that. All right, so that's stuff that's going up on the website. So Mad Men reviews will be weekly, and definitely some more movie reviews coming out soon enough. Um, you know, the next movie I'm super interested in that's that's big and coming out that I know when is coming out is Avengers: Age of Ultron, which we'll obviously have an episode about here and stuff. Yes. Uh, other stuff. I mean, there are movies coming out that I am interested in, and I'm just not entirely sure when they hit Denver and that sort of thing. But uh, so that's when if I write about those. But yeah. So, that's what's going on on my end. Uh, right. Sean, let's yes. talk a little just ra- random stuff. Okay. So, you finished Bloodborne. Yes, I did. Yeah, I you want to talk about Bloodborne? Yeah, yeah. Like, I, the, you know, the last time I talked about it on the podcast, I was right, like, I was really close to the end. And so, I, there's, like, not a whole lot that changed my opinion. I still think Bloodborne is absolutely fantastic. Um, like, I, for people who have played and, like, are curious, I got the... I guess you'd say the third ending, like the the real true ending of the game, because there are three different endings. And for people who are still playing the game, you might want to try to like look up a spoiler free way to get the ultimate ending, because it's not like it's not impossible. But it's kind of like Persona Four, where it's like the true ending is hard enough to stumble on on your own and easy enough to miss that you probably want to just look it up because it is. Not not to say that like getting the true ending is like oh now everything makes sense because. The true ending ends with a character holding up a slug. That's like the last shot of the game, like a big slug creature. And, and like giving context for that would be a little bit too spoilery. Even if I gave context for it, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't know how you would explain that. Yeah, no. Yeah. But yeah, so again, it's not like the story, kind of like with Dark Souls, the story's not, you know, so upfront that like anything ever makes sense really. But I, I do think like it's... You, you fight, like, an extra boss if you get the true ending, and it's, it's, there's a little bit more sort of, like, completeness feeling to the ending than, like, I watched the videos for the other endings, and, like, they're very obviously, like, bad endings to the game that do not wrap up a story. So, yeah, like, Bloodborne, uh, really awesome, amazing, amazing game. I think I personally probably like it more than Dark Souls, even though... Bloodborne does not have, like, the range of different characters you can make in Dark Souls. I actually ended up making another character that I'm not sure how far I'm going to go in it on. But, like, my main character in Bloodborne was kind of like a dexterity build character, which kind of changes what weapons you're going to use over the course of the game. So I just started a new character to focus on the strength stat to use strength weapons since I didn't get to use any of those. And I, you know, once you know how to play that game and know where enemies are and stuff, you can just, like, blaze through it really quickly. So, like, I, it was interesting to me that I had this compulsion to play Bloodborne again, to play a different class or kind of character, even though there's less of a difference between different kinds of characters in Dark Souls. Whereas when I beat Dark Souls, I was like, eh, I could play it again with magic, but that doesn't seem like that would be that much fun. So, yeah, I think Bloodborne is an absolutely amazing game and people should play it. Awesome. I also saw you playing earlier today Axiom Verge, yes, a new PS4 game. came out very recently with Sony's, like, Spring Fever Right. thing they're doing where like an indie game comes out every week and this just got really really good buzz and it's a metroid style game i refuse to say metroidvania because i hate that term so that's a, stupid that would yeah. be like saying like if you just if you took the original and then a knockoff yeah it would be like calling that. first person shooters doom and steins you yeah know? it's like that's, that's yeah. what i was meaning yeah yeah so yeah like people use that fucking metroidvania term i hate that term it's a metroid style game so you know and it's very retro style it's like, you know, it, it kind of is going for an NES 8-bit kind of aesthetic with its graphics, but it does a lot of very interesting things with it. I'm not super deep in, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. And, like, 
I'm not the biggest fan of the Metroid game genre. Like, it's not my favorite, but it's one that, like, every couple of years, I feel like I just have to play one. It's just, like, a genre that's... It's... Like, it's so... It's such a specific kind of game that I can't play a lot of them in succession. It's like, every once in a while, I'm ready for one. I'm no, ready I, for this. I totally feel that. I think it's a kind of game genre that is super demanding for the developer, super demanding for the player. Yeah. And it's really easy to get wrong, but when you get it right, I think it's one of the most fascinating and compelling kinds of games you could yeah. ever play. So, yeah, I looked it up. It's it's on PS4 right now. It's going to come out on Vita soon, and I will probably play it when it comes out on Vita. Yeah, uh, this seems cool. like it would be a good game for the Vita. In fact, yeah. like I would probably even prefer to play it on the Vita because playing it, it's like full widescreen. Yeah. And sometimes, like especially on some of the boss fights, the bosses are on like the far right side of the screen and you're on the far left side of the screen and trying to dodge projectiles and shoot the boss. That's really hard on like, you know, we don't have the biggest TV in the world, but it's a decent sized TV. Right. And it's like, that style of game is not made to be that. I almost wish it was just in full screen because it would make it a lot yeah. easier to sort of encapsulate the game. Right. So maybe it would even be better to play on Vita where you can see the whole screen easily yeah, totally. at one time. And I like that kind of game on that kind of device. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, anyway, looks like a cool game. And maybe we'll talk yeah. about it more when we've had more experience with yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So I don't have a lot of game stuff to talk about. I mean, I've really just been playing... I played some of Super Mario 64 because that's out on the Wii U right, right. now and that's fun. And that's a good game. It's a great game. Yeah, and I, it is... I really like that game. Sadly, it is one of those things where I have played that game too much in my life that sure, yeah. at a certain point, like, a lot of the genius of 64 I still completely respect on, like, an intellectual level, but now I can't enjoy it as much because it's so exploration and mystery-based and just having yeah. fun discovering stuff. And I, I do know everything. There's, like, there's no discovery or exploration mm-hmm. for it anymore. That is not at all a knock on that game. I've just I've been playing it for fifteen years. You yeah, know, it's yeah, yeah, longer than that. It, it, so anyway, brilliant game. If, if you somehow I've never played Super Mario sixty four, yeah, thumbs up. But anyway, I'm yeah, saying, I recommend I've, getting around to it. Yeah, I've just point. been playing some stuff to kind of kill time when I need to take a break from things, but not a lot. Right. But I, I did play something new this week, and I it leads me to a question I want to ask you, Sean. Okay. I want to see if you can answer this, or if we can figure out and answer this. All right. I'm curious what this is going to be. Why do people like Telltale games? You know what? Why the fuck do people like Telltale games? So the games? first, like, just, like, which which one have you been playing? What All right, here's what here? brought this up. If you don't know what the Telltale games are, they're these, like, you know, pseudo-narrative games. Uh, they're, they're, like, mod, like, the new kind of adventure games right. that are much more narrative-based instead of being, like, I picked yeah. up a flower, and now I have to click the flower on everything on the screen. It's more like... I have to go talk to this guy and talk to him. It's even more annoying. Uh, and anyway, I have to walk over there and yeah. talk to this guy. And talk so to they're him. most famous for their Walking Dead season one and two, but they yeah. also did, you know, uh, Wolf Among Wolf Us, Among and Us, Tales, from, Tales the from the Borderlands, and, and Game now of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yeah. This that is was so, my pro- my mental process of elimination. Yeah. I was like, what? Tell they've, they've made so many games in the past like three years. I was like, what one could you have played? It's like ah, it must here's be Game what of it Thrones. is. So this week, uh, Amazon was giving away the first episode of Telltale's Game of Thrones for Android devices, and I recently got an Android phone, so I'm like, okay, that'll give me a chance to try it out. I don't want to play sure, the whole thing that way. Sure, that seems like a weird way to play one of those games. I, but I just wanted to see if it was yeah. any good because I don't want to just plop down the money for it randomly, and I'm not going to plop down the money for it because it's terrible. Uh, but it led me. I got like 30 minutes in, and I was just like, same thing with Walking Dead. I cannot get into their game style. I think the writing is atrocious. I think the graphics look stupid. I think the engine is rough. Uh, there's so much about their stupid choice thing that just is so simplistic and frankly pandering. 
nothing about their games interests me and then you have to do all these dumb little quick time events and it's like stroke the sword to get the blood off it we're not going to tell you exactly how to do this so it's probably going to take you five minutes to figure out what the fuck we want you to do but this so is that's fun so Jonathan are you telling me you've been spending all of your time stroking your sword is yes. that what I'm to get from this okay anyway it's like the third thing you do in the game also if you like, have some blood on your sword you might want to talk to a doctor about that it's just my feeling about this and The Walking Dead which I've I've tried to play The Walking Dead several times sure, and I yeah. just can't get into it is if you want to make a fucking visual novel, make a visual novel, but don't do this stupid pandering hybrid thing where you pretend it's interactive sometimes, but it really isn't, and I'd be much more interested just sitting there and watching things unfold than having to interact for five seconds and not know exactly what you want me to do, and then go back to listening to the awful writing and shit. Mm-hmm. That's that's my two cents. Yeah, no, like, I, I think that episode two of... Season 1 of Walking Dead, because all I've played from the Telltale stuff is the first season of The Walking Dead, which I thought was okay, but, like, had so many massive problems, most of what you've been saying. Uh, the, what, think, whatever year that came out, we talked about it at the year end yeah. stuff, so... Episode 2 of Season 1 of The Walking Dead is really cool. I really like Episode 2 of that. If the rest of that season had been as good as Episode 2, I think the first season of Walking Dead would have been a pretty good game. But n- even if it, like, it had all been of that quality, I don't think it would have been deserving... Of how of the press response to it, and then also like the Telltale bubble, I think burst really heavily after that first season of Walking Dead because I haven't played any of the other games because I didn't like that first season enough to sort of justify it. But the reviews of them, while they're not terrible, like nobody is sort of praising it the way that everyone was all on season one's dick, you know. True, however. People still say, like, okay, it's got this problem, this problem, this problem, but still Telltale, so it's great, and we should be excited. And that's what I'm feeling from the internet these days, is it's... Like, that... And that's... The first episode of Game of Thrones got rave reviews from people. Really? I thought it was... From what I saw. I thought it was, like, kind of, like, 8 out of 10, which is, like... That's not terrible, but, like... Okay, I thought that was When it's high, sort of, like, but... riding a... That, like, Telltale wave. It's kind of yeah. like when Assassin's Creed 3 got a bunch of 8 out of 10s. Okay. It's like, you know, that's not a bad review score... But you know that, like, for that series, that's, like, such a step down that's, like, it's, like, a sign. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, this Game of Thrones one in particular, like, I think maybe it would be easy f- easier for me to get into Walking Dead because I don't watch or read The Walking yeah. Dead. But I do watch Game of Thrones, and their pale, poor imitation of trying to do the writing of Game of Thrones... It's it's laugh-worthy. It's, sure, and the, yeah. And the performances, it's like, where did you get these actors? This is... You know, it's just, it's such a poor imitation of the real thing. It's like... Yeah, I'll go back to watching Game of Thrones. Thank you. Yeah, it's also something that, like... One thing that nobody ever talks about with the Telltale games is, like... Maybe, for me, one of the most destructive parts about it... Since it's such a narrative-based experience... Is it's, like, the animation is so shit in those games. Like, it's so jerky... And, like, the facial expressions are so, like, bland in nothing, you know? Like, it feels like they're kind of trying to go for a stylized look... But they don't either have the budget or the time to like fully go all in on that and like the animation is so bad and the sort of the visual element of the game is so boring that when it's so much of the game is just about delivering like story to you it's like I can't get into it when when that visual element of it is just like and that's part of what Nothing. I mean, that's part of what I mean when I say if you want to be a visual novel, be a visual yeah. novel. Because in a visual novel, you can pick the the like a nice just single illustration of that character, and you can honestly get more emotion across through that. Absolutely. You can pick yeah. camera angles, you can pick images, and you can do a lot more with a lot less. Mm-hmm. Hence, it being a big genre in Japan where game studios don't necessarily have huge budgets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
yeah, no, like, I'm totally with you. Again, like, I think there's, like, the first season of The Walking Dead had some moments that were interesting. And since it was, like, the first thing like that, it was interesting. But, yeah, the, the critical response to it was blown way out of proportion and, and yeah and part of what i don't get is is everyone always talking about oh the choices are so cool because you <laughs> drive the choices and it's... i swear to god in the first episode of game of thrones one of the first big things you do where like it, a character's reaction will be impacted by your choice yeah it's so like this talk... person will remember that you said that no Those so it, yeah. yeah so it's it's i'm talking to lord forrester and i i just i i picked every option of trying to piss him off just to see if anything would happen and so i piss him off and it goes for this incredibly jerky animation where there's not even a cut or anything. He's just suddenly his face changes like they've put a new just like, guy and there. And he like and sneers at you or something. Yeah. Yeah. He sneers at you mm-hmm. and says something. And then he snaps back into being happy and being like, you are like a son to me. Mm-hmm. Because that's what the overall story demands. Yeah. So there's no real choice. Yo, you're absolutely right. Like it's so... Again, it's like it was something that with the first season of The Walking Dead, they disguised it okay for the first two episodes. But like at a certain point, like you... You, it became so obvious that the choices were so module, you know, that it's like, yeah. yeah, like you make this choice, and so then, like, for the next cut, and like the next couple of lines, like, will be related to that choice, and then, yeah, they'll snap back to, like, main story mode, and then, like, one episode later, you'll be talking to that character again, and then, like, there will be one sentence in the middle of a conversation that links back to that one choice like really obviously and they'll like snap to like a different camera angle and yeah like their face will just snap to another emotion and they'll say that line like oh and I fucking hate you even if the main conversation is about how like you're best friends which is like an exact situation that happened to me in episode 5 where my reactions to one character in The Walking Dead changed when I realized that character was a complete asshole. So I started, like, changed from being like, hey, we're buddies, conversation options, to you're a fucking asshole, conversation options. So, like, every other sentence with that guy was like, I fucking hate you, you didn't try to save my son. And it's like, man, you've always tried to stick by me. But then that one time you said that something to my wife. But, man, we've been through thick and thin. It was just like, the guy was like a fucking schizophrenic all of a sudden. And it's like... I'm used to, in, like, the choice thing in video games, like, the Mass Effect Dragon Age Bioware model of it being super fluid, yeah. and, and, like, they do it so well, and it's like, I don't know how, if you've ever played a game like that, you can look at the Telltale stuff and think that's even acceptable mm-hmm. as game design. And then you get into the dumb stuff where, like, you know, you have to clean your sword, or you have to run around, and so you have to hold one button down, and it's super awkward... Or, you know, where I finally just gave up on Walking Dead Episode 1 multiple times is when you get to that fucking farm and you have to walk around and figure out what to do. And yeah. there's no indication. I have never figured out what they want me to do there. You just talk. I mean... I did talk to everyone. Nothing oh, happens. Yeah. Nothing happens. Eventually, like, a bunch of zombies attack. And then okay. you make a choice to save, like, one person's life or this other person's life. Right. But no matter what choice you make, the same person dies. Oh, wow. Yeah. How am I not surprised by that, Yeah, and then at the end of that episode, you get to make another choice between two people, and you actually do get to save one of them, but even if the person you save, uh, they have, like, five lines in the rest of the... and then they die in episode three. So it's like, yeah, it's one of those things where as soon as you give the, the player choice in the story, it's like... You can't write a story with those choices being meaningful. Like, unless it's a visual novel is the only format that allows that because it allows you to do so much writing so quickly with such a low budget. Whereas, like, with that, they can't, like, do all the animation, record all the lines, and do everything to actually make those choices feel impactful. So it's like, they're so hamstrung. But the biggest problem is that they try to sort of force down your throat constantly. It's like, 
always reminding you, it's like, your choices matter. Like, every time you load up the game, it's like, they don't, might not do this anymore. But no, they do. They where do. it's just like, this is a game where your choices matter. Like, your choices affect the way the story goes. Yep, it's Game like, of Thrones opens that yeah, way. Yeah, every time you open, they fucking load it up. That's what it says. And every time I look at it, it's like, no, fucking no. Fucking no, it doesn't. Shift, shut the fuck up. And the other thing I'll say is that, you know, I can see why some people might be interested in the Walking Dead version of this. Because that's at least a universe where it's just... It's just a generic zombie universe. There's yeah. nothing special about The Walking Dead. So you're, you can tell... You're, it's definitely right. There's nothing special about The Walking Dead. Yeah, I've never watched the TV show, but I can just tell. I can tell you as a fan of the zombie genre, there's yeah. nothing in season one of The Walking Dead that's special. Okay. And a lot of the people that wrote about it, I don't think were like... Watched a lot of zombie movies because they were surprised by like kids turning into zombies. Which is a thing that happens in like every yeah. zombie movie. I mean, The Walking Dead has a level of popularity that zombie stuff has never had, so that's sure. part of it, is there's yeah. a big audience that just has never watched zombie stuff, so they're... And I think that's it, because if you look at any critical reception to the TV show, it's totally muted. It's like, this show's okay, yeah. and that's the best that people give it, but it's got a big audience in part because I think it's using cliches that are probably unfamiliar to a large audience, because The Walking Dead is not a cult hit, it is the highest rated show yeah. on television, um, you know, or drama. So, you know, it's it's... I, th- I think it gets by on that. But yeah, so in the video games, at least, Telltale can tell whatever story they want, and it doesn't matter what the larger continuity is, mm-hmm. because it's just a zombie world. You can yeah. you can make a character matter. Yeah, as far know? as I know, like, I don't have any real experience with the rest of The Walking Dead, but I'm pretty sure there's, like, nothing in those no. games that really refer to the other Walking Dead things. Right. So it's easy to do that. With Game of Thrones, however... You can't just right. pick whatever shitty house we've never heard of you want to before and make us suddenly care about characters who mean nothing. Because I'll tell you what, Game of Thrones itself has enough characters I don't give a shit about. <laughs> right. Okay? Yeah. Game of Thrones, and, and I'm really excited for this upcoming season, because one of them, they've just kicked off the show, and he's not going to come back until season six. And yeah. I love that. And they need to do more of that, because Game of Thrones has a lot of great characters, and then it has a lot of... Why are we spending time on these people characters? I'm talking about Bran. If you like Bran, you're fucking stupid. Anyway, um, so but with and so now it's we're House Forester. We are one of Thor Stark's most loyal bannermen. It's like, and you, you conveniently have never heard about any of these right, people before, right? I think if you look at like the appendices to one of the books, maybe they're on a chart. Yeah, it's like a, Drew. yeah, like a yeah. per parenthetical in a footnote yeah. somewhere. Forced, but I mean, here's the thing: it's Telltale had to go to the bankers of the show and to George R. R. Martin and be like, you know, what's a set of characters neither of you will ever use in any way that we can then use? And it's like, why make the game at that point? So, are you saying that playing the Game of Thrones game is like playing anime filler Game of Thrones? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, more boring, but yeah. Sure, yeah. But it's like, yeah, it's like we can't use, we can't make any new characters that can be significant in any way. Yeah. So, we just can't make anything that's interesting, but we're going to make it anyways to try to make money. Like Gohan and the Orphans. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, those orphans aren't going to come back. Yeah, they can never come back. Or yeah. like, you know, any of like the movie villains. It's like, they yeah. can never be anything in anything ever. Like, it's yeah. just, they have to be relegated to their weird pocket universe yeah. and never be referred to in the actual material. Whatever happened on that, like, three years of Naruto they did that were just... Right, filler. that's, like, Naruto yeah. filler is, like, a, probably a better example where it's, like, they're just characters that, like, you can't make anything that's interesting. Because it's, like, you're making a small, not like, effectively non-canonical portion of a very large canonical universe. And so when you're engaging in that, 
the entire time, at least for me, I'm always just thinking, it would be a lot more interesting if I was just with, like, the main characters that I like from the thing that I like, right. instead of watching these people that are, like, sad carbon copies of the characters that I like from the yeah, thing that I like. Yeah, because that's the other thing. Even in the small amount of this game I played, I could tell, like, okay, that character is supposed to be this character. Yeah, exactly. And that character is supposed to be this character. And it's like... And this event is basically just this event from yeah. the novels or whatever. Yeah, yeah. so whatever. I. I don't get the whole Telltale thing, and I hope more and more people start coming around on that. I think you're right; people are starting to come around on that. But There's, yeah, there just doesn't seem to be an enthusiasm for it anymore. Yeah. So we'll see. It's just it's it's a weird thing that kind of annoys me when something gets hyped beyond what it ever should have been hyped. Yeah, as. because it's definitely something that like I see how a game like that could be very interesting if the writing was really good and the production values were really good. Yeah, but that's not what those are. No, and it's just the other thing of people acting like when Walking Dead came out and up to now, like this is a new kind of thing they're doing and no one else does stuff like this. It's like visual novels have existed forever. This kind yeah. of adventure games have existed forever. Bioware RPGs have existed forever. Yeah. This is this is nothing new and it does nothing better than any of those things. I mean, it's so. like the specific format is different. Like there, like there's nothing. It takes elements from those different yeah. things and puts them together in a way that's never quite been done. But still, the the production behind, like, the, just the quality of it is not high enough, yeah. I think, for to make it interesting to me. Yeah. Oh, well. Anywho, let's go ahead and move on. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I wasn't expecting to just get really angry from Telltale Avenger games all of a sudden. Man, I, just, I was lying in bed the other day playing this, this game, and I was already in a bad mood because I just was, I had a headache and everything. I was like, all right, I, I'll play this stupid Game of Thrones game. And it put me in a bad mood. I'm like, I'm talking about this on the podcast. Yeah. Because I would, I would like a good Game of Thrones thing to have while I'm waiting for the new season. But no. Alright, anyway. And if you're wondering, I, I don't write about Game of Thrones because it's the exact same night and time as Mad Men. So that's impossible. But yeah, sure. uh, maybe next year when Mad Men is off the air. Again, we'll see, we'll see what plans are. I like writing about Game of Thrones when I get to, but it's pretty infrequent. So... Let's go ahead and talk about some other TV stuff, Sean. All right. This is just a... I like TV shows. Little, sometimes. little piece of news we forgot to mention uh, last week. You mean a massive, amazing piece of news. Yes. I should say beforehand, with TV, have you watched any of Daredevil yet? No, I'm kind of waiting on that for a bit. I've heard it's really good, though. I'm so excited, yeah. and I hope we can both watch it soon and talk about mm-hmm. it, because yeah. it looks fantastic. Yeah. But yeah. And I'm, was... I'm a huge fan of Vincent D'Onofrio, because he's a really great actor that's not in a lot of stuff and yeah. he's Kingpin yep. that's amazing fucking casting there's there's some other good actors in it who are similarly underused I think yeah. in some cases so yeah uh, looks great anyway um, yeah so let's talk about some other TV stuff though so uh, over the last couple of weeks there's been a flood of networks deciding they're going to resurrect TV shows from the 90s yeah the weirdest of which is NBC deciding they're going to bring back Coach which is this sitcom I had never heard about. I've never heard of this. It's from the 90s. It aired for 10 seasons and won Emmys. And I've never heard of it. It's with... I forget. A really good, like, older actor. But anyway. And they're bringing it back for some reason because they want to get the 80-year-old generation. I don't know. It's weird. They want to get your parents watching it. Sure. Which is weird because advertisers on networks don't pay for people outside of the Mm -hmm. 18 to 35 demographic. So, weird. But anyway. That's happening. So that's weird. In more exciting news, there's the whole thing about, you know, uh, Showtime's bringing back Twin Peaks from the 90s. Sure. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And then Fox, to kind of complete some of these, uh, this trifecta, and I'm sure there's more 90s shit coming back. But anyway, is Fox is bringing back the X-Files for a six-episode run with Chris Carter, the creator, and David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson, the stars. 
And, uh, and ex- Mitch Pelegi and William B. Davis, who play uh, assistant director Skinner in the Cigarette Smoking Man, respectively. Okay, I had so. not heard about that yet. Yes. Because the initial announcement was like just those Yeah, like that came out like a couple of days later, so right. it's like the. No word on if the Lone Gunman will be in there. Okay. Yeah, and I don't think they've said exactly when they're going to air it, but they're going to do production this summer. Yeah. So, you know, I would expect that maybe mid season 2016, just because that would be a nice shallow time for them to air it. But we'll see. Uh, so, but why we need to talk about this is because the X Files happens to be one of the favorite shows of one of the hosts of this show. Yes. Which can you guess which one it is? Was that the most awkward setup, Jonathan? I know. I just yeah. Did. I know. You really fucking love the X Files. It's a fu- yeah. It's, it's. I think I put it as my second favorite show yes. when we did top ten TV shows. Yeah. The X Files is. It's just an amazing fucking show, and I've been rewatching some of it on Netflix ever since this announcement came out. Because I've know, noticed, yeah, yeah, the X Files is amazing, and it like that show is still really, really fucking good. Like that show still, I think, handles its sort of like monster of the week moving into like larger story arc stuff better than most shows do. It's just like the monster of the week episodes are like incredible still. But yeah, I'm a huge. And the X Files was like this brain farm. So many people came out of that. Yeah, like Vince Gilligan who made a Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. Yeah. And uh, Darren Morgan, who did Dexter, mm-hmm. which went off the rails eventually, but I yeah. think he was gone by then. Probably, yeah. Um, so just, like, it's an, it's interesting. There was a lot of talent, and a lot of directors and stuff, too, got their yeah. start there. That's actually like something that I've been kind of paying attention to, rewatching the X-Files also, is, like, I, the some of the episodes are actually really remarkably, like, directed. Like, they make some really bold choices with some episodes of yeah. the X-Files. It's just, like, a lot of TV shows then and even now don't necessarily do quite what the X-Files did. Like, it's still a really unique show. Yeah. And it still has one of the greatest theme songs of all time. Oh, like, totally. you hear that fucking... Like, and, like, just, like, the visuals to go over the opening theme. Every time that happens, I get super excited. Like, it's just an immediate Pavlovian response. It's incredible. Yeah. So, I basically, I'm, I'm talking about this because I want to yeah. hear. Are you excited for more X-Files? Yeah, I'm fucking... I'm super stoked. You know, they did that movie in 2008. That's not great. Like, it's the, some people say that's terrible, but it's, like... I just thought it was kind of meh. Yeah, it's like it's it's kind of just an average movie. Like it, obviously, they didn't have like a, much of a budget for that movie. Obviously, they, so like it was fun to watch. You know, they got Mulder and Scully back, and that's always fun. And but yeah, like knowing that it's Chris Carter coming back, knowing that it's you know you got the main cast and some of the probably the two my two favorite supporting characters, which are Skinner and the Cigarette Smoking Man. Even though the cigarette smoking man died in at the end of season nine, but that's spoiler. Whatever. Well, come on, it's, it's okay. that show goes so far off the rails. I think it like season seven, season eight. That by the time you get to season nine, you're like anything can happen by now. Because I think he had already died, but then he wasn't actually dead, and he was living in like some Native American cave, like getting <laughs> high. And, like it's really fucking weird. The places that character they go with that character is very strange. Yeah. So. I forgot what I was talking about. Are yeah. you excited for the reboot? They yeah. did the movie. Mm-hmm. Now like, you're... It's, it's, I'm mostly curious to know what they're going to do. Like, my biggest hope is that it's just six standalone episodes. Just do Monster of the Week stuff because I think, while it would be interesting to see what they would try to tackle with the larger conspiracy storyline that, that had all this, like, 2012 kind of stuff going on when that show was going off the air because that was, like, 2001. So 2012 was something that was actually, like, cool to think about back then is, like, mind prophecy and shit. Now that's so passe that I hope they don't try to go back and do a whole because it would like if they tried to do like this whole alien colonization thing, which is what they're kind of building up. It would just consume the whole chunk. Wouldn't it be great if they came back first episode? Mulder and Scully are hanging out. And I was like, 
Gee, Mulder, remember when we had to fight the aliens? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. They just the live in this post-colonization world. It's like they, yeah, like Mulder and Scully fought off the aliens single-handedly. Yeah, yeah like Cigarette Smoking Man joined their side at last. They're like Mulder and Cigarette Smoking Man fighting side by side. Yeah. Yeah, that, that would be really funny. I hope they just kind of ignore it. And just like, you know, have... The hand in the first episode, like, have Mulder and Scully get reinstated to the FBI because they were on the run. And that was, like, the, the 2008 movie right. kind of, like, took that up a little bit. Like, have them be brought back in. Since you're bringing back Skinner, who was, like, their boss at the FBI, you can just have him bring them back to the X-Files, reopen the X-Files. Because the X-Files got closed, like, 5,000 times on the show. <laughs> so, like, I just finished watching the first arc where they closed the X-Files for the first time. I'm like, oh, yeah, this isn't the only time that this happens. They make such a big deal out of it now. To reopen the X-Files and just have them go on some really weird cases. That's that's what I want and, most from the show. And maybe they could set it up and rehabilitate it that every couple of years, if they wanted to, they could do a special or a standalone Yeah, exactly. Thing or, just yeah. Like, it would be cool if they could just open it up and just... like The, the potential for the X-Files doing really grand alien conspiracy stories, I think, is kind of gone. But that was never the best part of the show. Like It was a thread of the show that was necessary because it allowed for a lot of interesting character development and bigger storylines sort of propelled the show and gave it a lot of momentum but the best and most memorable episodes are definitely the standalone ones that just like take that sort of police procedural format and flip it on its head with like a really fascinating supernatural mystery you know like that's the what i want most because re-watching particularly the first season of the x-files has so many episodes that as soon as i saw like the first 10 seconds of it, even though I haven't watched an episode of the X Files since like my sophomore year in high school, which is like fucking like forever ago now, I would see like ten seconds of it and be like, "Oh shit, it's this episode that like has this amazing character in it, and like is this yeah. incredible twist, and like they're so memorable and so interesting that if you can just recapture some of that magic, that's all I'm asking for. And you could easily have six amazing episodes if you did it in that way. And they haven't announced like who all is going to work on it. Like we know Chris Carter is going to be there and the yeah. actors, but. It might be. It would be interesting to see if they can get any of these now very famous TV writers back yeah. to maybe just maybe Vince Gilligan would love to just write a. He has an idea for I. I wanted to write this X. Yeah, like story the, and, the show has been off the air for yeah. like fourteen years yeah. now. Like some of those guys, yeah, like the I've best writers of, of the yeah. show have probably been like, "Fuck, man, this would be a great story for yeah. the X Files." And it's actually one of the really fun things if you listen to the Breaking Bad or now Better Call Saul podcast. Vince Gilligan tells X Files stories all the time. Cool. It's one of the fun things. It's just like because he can't, he learned to do this on that show, mm-hmm. so he has so much. And he, you know that show went on forever. Yeah, <laughs> so, nine seasons. Yeah. You know, it was a long chunk of his life. And anyway, I just think that it, there's a lot of possibilities. And yeah, I, I have I should say my experience with the X Files is not as big as yours. Mm-hmm. I've seen like you know scattered episodes from throughout the run, yeah. and then I've I know I've watched at least the majority of the first season. But I tried watching it back before it was like easily available on Netflix, right? Yeah, and I've always I I love the show. I've always meant to take the time and watch it. It's just it's a it's a big show, yeah, you know? definitely. Um, but I'm going to try now because I would love maybe over the summer. I don't necessarily plan on getting through the whole thing, but if I could watch enough that we could do a fun X Files episode, sure, yeah. I know you would like that. Yeah, definitely. And it is a thing that, like, if you wanted to, you could stop. Like, I think the show actually kind of got back to an interesting place in Season 9, where by then they had basically replaced Mulder. Like, Scully was still on the show, but Mulder was almost all the way off it. They they had kind of done something interesting with it, but you could really stop watching, like, around Season 6, I would say. I think maybe you could tell me what episodes I should see from the rest of it. Maybe, yeah, because I think between Season 5 and Season 6, I want to say, is when the first movie takes place. 
Like, you should at least get through where they do all the stuff with the first movie. Because the first movie is not amazing, but, like, because it's just a giant episode of the show, like, it fits into, like, the chronology and everything. Like, if you did not watch that movie, like, it would, and you just started watching season six, you would not understand anything of what the fuck was going on. So that movie is really great for fans, but, like, just not stand alone as a movie at all. Doesn't that movie also end with them reopening the X Files? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that was a, they, they like doing that. Yeah, it's something that is like because it was always something where because they work for the fucking federal government, they're FBI agents, and everything that they are doing is uncovering conspiracies about like this shadowy cabal within the American government. It was always just like, why don't you just kill Mulder and Scully, government? Like, what do you like? Why do you have them working for you when they are using your own resources to try to defeat you? Like, what are you doing? There's some plot holes with, like, the logic of that show some places, but... But that's okay. Yeah, you it's... Know. Yeah, it's not yeah. important. Speaking of shows with plot holes and logic problems... Yeah, okay. <laughs> Alright, uh, Twin Peaks. This is just funny because... Alright, it was actually a couple of months ago Showtime announced... Yeah. ...that we've got David Lynch and Mark Frost, and they're gonna write and direct nine new episodes of Twin Peaks for us, and this is totally actually going to happen. Yeah. And a bunch of people Got, believed like, Kyle it. Kyle McLaughlin was coming yeah. back and everything. And a bunch of people believed that was going to happen, and are naive. Uh, <laughs> because I kind of... Because the big part of that announcement was that David Lynch and Mark Frost, who created the original Twin Peaks, would write all of it, which I can believe, and then that David Lynch was going to direct all nine episodes, which you might have a little trouble believing when you consider that David Lynch in the 2000s has only directed two movies, and the last one was in 2006, and he's basically just dropped off the map since then. And he's a weird guy who didn't really play well with TV the first time he did it. Yeah, right. So, anyway, to not my surprise, but apparently to other people's surprise, uh, over the last weekend... David Lynch got on Twitter and said, I'm done, I'm not doing Twin Peaks for Showtime because they wouldn't give me the money I needed. And, you know, it's it's a complex situation. What I do find funny is, one, that people are even vaguely surprised by that happening just with that guy and his personality. And I love David Lynch. I'm yeah. not saying anything else. But just, he is, you know, I it's not what I would necessarily expect to happen that way. And then people just automatically siding with him when... It's he's probably just trying to do public negotiation. I Showtime could be offering him plenty of money. I don't. You yeah. Know, I, I wouldn't. Some people have been also assuming that Showtime is being the bad guys in this, and I would not expect that. Frankly, I any network that wants to revive Twin Peaks of all things, yeah, probably has their heart in the right place. Yeah, like I wonder how much cachet Twin Peaks has nowadays. Like is that my like, show was really beloved, but like it was not around. I mean, it only had two seasons, and the second season it's was shit. It's still a big cult hit. It's a, it's sure, gotten yeah. bigger because it's on Netflix, and they just did the Blu-ray set last year. No right, and you know I, yeah, I think it's weird that anyone would. I mean, it's just it's our nostalgia machine now. We're gonna bring sure, everything yeah. back from the '90s and all this stuff. I mean, X Files makes sense because X Files was for a number of years there one of the highest rated shows on television. Yeah, I mean they got their own fucking movie that right. they made that fit in between two seasons. Like it was not some like no. we're doing some weird adaptation of the X-Files as a movie. It's like no, we're just fucking making a movie-sized episode of this show now. Yeah, and that while, does not happen. And while I do think, you know, like the last movie kind of flopped, which isn't surprising because it wasn't a movie series, it makes sense that on TV the X-Files will always have a built-in audience, I think. Yeah. Like it will do well for Fox for six episodes. Totally, that's going to get viewers. Mm-hmm. You know, you can trust that, I think. Twin Peaks is a little different, but Showtime doesn't have to worry about that so much because they are a, a pay, pay cable channel. Yeah, that's right. But anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, thoughts? Yeah, like, I watched the first season of Twin Peaks and the first, the first few episodes of season two and, like, couldn't get into season two as much 
But, like, the first season of Twin Peaks is fucking awesome. Like, it's a weird, incredible fucking show. Like, the Kyle MacLachlan character is amazing. Like, the 90s was the decade for, like, weird FBI agents on TV shows, evidently. But, yeah, yeah like, I, I wasn't necessarily... I'm not a huge Twin Peaks fan, so I was, like, super stoked for it coming back because... Like, I'm a big enough fan of the X-Files that even if it comes back and it's complete shit, which is a complete possibility, I'll still watch it and still enjoy it because I like the characters and the concept enough. Whereas, like, with Twin Peaks, if it came back and everyone said it was complete shit, I'd probably never watch it. Yeah. Know? Well, because I have not watched Twin Peaks. It's it's on my to-do list. But part of the thing is, the second season was, it didn't go the direction they intended. Yeah. David Lynch and Mark Frost were taken off of it for periods it kind of, as I understand it, the last couple of episodes of season two are really interesting, but then end on a cliffhanger because, you know, they got canceled. Yeah. So, yeah, I, it's a weird kind of thing where I I would rather David Lynch make another movie or sure, Mark yeah. Frost make a new TV he show. He should go I, and he should make, a, like, Dune again. He should just sure. make another Dune. He, he hated his experience on that movie so much so that he took his name off of the credits, but he should still make another Dune because... That the Dune the movie came up in one of my classes sort of tangentially and I've been thinking a lot about that lately and yeah. that's what I'd rather have him spend his time doing is recapture that insane magic somehow rather than going to Twin Peaks yeah just cause you know I think Twin Peaks maybe had it's time and maybe they really do have something new to say with this but you know it's it's not the X-Files again you can this is a good comparison cause I can totally understand why those people would say sure six episodes we can do another six yeah. episodes of the X-Files but what is another nine episodes of Twin That's Peaks? That's a really good point, because yeah, Twin Peaks was so focused on its core, the, the case about Laura Palmer, which they solved partway through season two, which is also when the show kind of like just yeah. goes bad, like just real bad. It's kind of after they solved the Laura Palmer stuff. And yeah, like, you know, the, the Kyle MacLachlan character is so interesting that it would be fun to see him back in that role doing something, but... Like, I don't necessarily want to see, like, everybody from Twin Peaks come back and, like, have him go back to the town and there being another mystery there. Like, yeah, the X-Files is a format that, like, you could do that infinitely. Like, it's like Doctor Who or something, like or Law and Order. Like, you could just keep on doing the episodes of that because it's just the, the core premise of the show allows it. Twin Peaks does not have that that sort of, like, core loop to it the way that those shows do, so. Yeah. And again, you know, especially because David Lynch has not been very prolific in this century... I I would like to see something new from him, maybe. You know, yeah. that's more than going back to something he already did. And who knows? if It is still, by the way, entirely possible that this gets made. Showtime has not canceled it. Mark Frost is still attached. Kyle McLaughlin is still attached. And, you know, I think what will probably end up happening is they'll bring... They'll get David Lynch back. He'll direct the first episode. And then, as happened on the original Twin Peaks, other people will direct the rest of it. Because yeah. that's and how TV shows work. And it'll be fine. Yeah, that's yeah. how TV... And, and there's so many great TV directors out there who would be just as good at directing an episode of TV as David Lynch would be. You know? Yeah. You can do it. Uh, I think it'll still happen. But we'll see. It's, it's a lot of fuss over something that I don't... It was going to get a lot of internet attention, but was never going to, like, change society. Yeah. You know? Not the way that six new episodes of The X-Files obviously will. Yes. Because the truth is out there, Jonathan. Absolutely. So anyway, the 90s are alive. It's weird. At least, like, The X-Files and Twin Peaks are, like, two really cool parts of the 90s. That's true. It's not like a lot of the shit that was going around in the 90s that people tried to bring back. Like Coach. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> to bring us back to the beginning uh, maybe, of Maybe. I have no idea. Like, I can't say. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like you, I never heard about that. I didn't even hear that they were bringing it back. I just think it's, it's funny. It's so off my radar. It doesn't even sound real. And what's funny about it is that 
people in our age group is who networks usually want to target, and they're bringing back a show nobody yeah. in, at our age would have ever heard of. I think it would be really smart if they brought back into the six-episode miniseries of Frasier. Like, I think that would really sell with the kids today. But Frasier people still watch. That's yeah. a popular... Frasier's actually really good. Yeah. yeah. Everyone loves Frasier. But anyway, yeah. That would be weird, though. Like, that's the thing with X-Files, I can understand we're going to do six more hours. It would be hilarious if you tried to do that with a sitcom. We're going to do yeah. six half hours, just a Frasier or something. Yeah, just normal sitcom plots. Yeah. So, Jonathan, do you think, like, ten years from now, we're going to get, like, weird six-episode revivals of, like, CSI Miami and shit like that? Like, is that where this is no. going? Like, CS- NCIS is going to come back ten years from now? No, because those shows, frankly, aren't distinctive or special enough in the moment for that to ever happen. True. They do all just bleed together in the most depressing way. And frankly, all those shows already have a very old viewership. So those people won't, frankly, be around to target anymore. Um, You know, NCIS does not really get a huge audience of people 18 to 35, I don't think. Uh, I don't know. I'm looking forward to, like, Detective Stabler and Benson solving sex crimes of the future in, like, 2025 when they bring SVU back. I do worry about maybe if they try to rope in people like Damon Lindelof and Ronald D. Moore to do more Lost or Battlestar Galactica, respectively, <laughs> because those are shows with definitive endings. And, like, and these, yeah, but yeah, like if yeah. they tried to print back, like instead of doing a reboot or like a, something with Lost, like try yeah. to do a continuation of Lost. Do you think people would just kill Damon Lindelof at that point because they hated the ending so much? I don't know. And again, the ending of Lost is actually really good. People yeah. are crazy, but. Yeah, uh, and I don't think David Lindelof would ever do that, but I'm just, well, yeah, I'm trying to think about this stuff, because what else exists today that is going to get brought back like this? Yeah. It's, yeah. See, this is good why Doctor Who just gets to continue. Yeah, exactly, not... it's the core premise of the show yeah. is it can't be yeah. rebooted, like, it doesn't even, like, it just reboots itself naturally. Yeah. It's interesting, Stephen Moffat did say this week that Doctor Who is basically signed on with the BBC for another five years. Fucking fantastic. So good, yeah. yeah. Some people took that to mean he will be with it for another five years. I don't think he's committing to that yet. Yeah, that's not the same thing. Yeah, but, you know, for right now, he is the shepherd of the series, and he would know these things. That's all. Yeah. I wanted to mention one other piece of TV-related news, because this is an interesting discussion to me. This week, uh, Al Jean, who runs The Simpsons and has for, like, 15 years now... um, and yes, The Simpsons is still on the air and making new episodes. How? What season are they on? At 26. God, fucking Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's a long show. Anyway, what's as you probably have seen, The Simpsons has been doing, steadily working through its catalog to get DVDs out of the whole series right. for oh, yeah, years now. Probably for a decade, trying to get all the DVDs out. And I think they were on season 17, and Al Jean announced on Twitter that Fox has decided to discontinue all home video releases of The Simpsons. And this has created a firestorm for various reasons, um, and I think the reason they're doing it, frankly, is, for one, Fox is the studio right now that is trying to kill its physical media division the most out of all the studios. They're just dumping anything they do on physical media. They're not focusing on it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, the show Louie, um, which is made by FX, which is a division of Fox, yeah. you can't... There's not conventional DVD or Blu-ray releases of that show anymore. You can only get them manufactured on demand from, like, Amazon. So, stuff like that. So, they are cutting out a lot of their physical media stuff. And I know a lot of people think, okay, we're in the streaming age, we're in the digital age. Who needs physical media anymore? The Simpsons thing is actually, I think, a really good example of why it's really dangerous to automatically get rid of our number one archival format right now and just ignore it. Because here's the thing. I think part of why they're doing this is because they have a really lucrative deal with FX right now where they have their Simpsons World app that shows you all the episodes. And then on FXX, the the, uh, sister network, they have a lot of Simpsons reruns. 
as from what I know, that's all FXX has. <laughs> sure, yeah. That, I mean, when you have 26 seasons of a fucking TV show, right. you can just do reruns of it perpetually forever. Yes. But anyway, here's the thing. If you go to FXX and watch The Simpsons, because I did look at it briefly when they had their marathon a couple months ago, and I've looked at The Simpsons World app. I, my provider, or my parents' provider, does not uh, has no deal with FX, so I can't actually access the whole app, but I can see clips and stuff. What they've done to The Simpsons is they've taken all the episodes, cropped them to 16 by 9, and DNR'd the shit out of them so they look super blurry and like they were made in Microsoft Paint. So the show, as of now, is not easy to see unless you have the DVDs in a format that is watchable. In part because The Simpsons enjoys doing certain visual gags that now just don't exist in the show. Like one of the great frames ever is the newspaper clipping of Old Man Yells at Cloud and it's Grandpa Abe. Right, yeah. That headline is gone in the episode because it's been cropped out. So stuff like that. So yeah. here you go. That's your streaming future. And for one, it's not easy to get that because you have to have a cable or satellite provider. Your cable or satellite provider has to have FX and FXX. And your cable and satellite provider has to have all of that and a deal that they will allow you to access the yeah. FX or Simpsons app, uh, which a lot of providers don't have. So that's a ton of money you would have to throw at this to get this app anyway. And if you do, it's a really subpar version of The Simpsons. So, while the majority of the show and certainly the years most people would care about are on DVD right now, I am wondering, does that mean they're going to go out of print? And does that mean they're going to get hard to find? And does that mean now that the only easy way to access these episodes in the way they were meant to be seen is going to be piracy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, it's it's almost like where, like, video games are. Where it's like... You know, with so many old games, like, trying to get the technology to run them naturally is, can be effectively impossible. That, like, the only way to sort of access it, or, like, the only way for it to even be preserved, sort of, like, hypothetically for future generations, is for people to, on their own time, to technically commit a crime and hack it and, like, make it available through emulators. It's, like, that's kind of where, like, yeah, The Simpsons is now, where either you have to go through their weird app which is like can be for some people basically impossible yeah. to get shittier versions of the TV show or you just fucking pirate it off the internet and get it in like a format that actually makes sense to you yeah and it's annoying in a bunch of ways I mean I know for a lot of people who have been loyally buying the sets for 10 years now you will never be able to complete your Simpsons like I wonder if they were doing that thing where like on the spine they were like making a picture they were not, them, but, and they just like it just yeah. stops and you're like you motherfuckers you tricked me and it's weird stuff, too, where they actually did, because season 20 is where they switched to HD. They did a Blu-ray release right when that came out, but they were only on, like, season 10 in the lineup. Hmm. So what is on DVD and Blu-ray right now is seasons 1 through 17, and I think the last couple of those are also on Blu-ray, and then season 20 on Blu-ray. Huh. So it's this weird lineup. And, you know, I know a lot of people say, oh, it's the later Simpsons, it doesn't matter. One, Simpsons has always been good, and, the, and it, no, it's not at the height of its powers from seasons 1 to 10. That show still reliably makes me laugh hard. It's a good show. And, again, the point isn't what we're archiving. It's that we archive it, period. You know? Yeah. That's the point. It's the quality kind of is, is off to the side right like now. Like, what if our streaming future brings back the dark reality that destroyed, like, years of Doctor Who, you know? Right. That's like when you, you're it's only made available in this digital format to consumers. That's like, it's so out of your hands how you're able to access that stuff. That Yeah, that's, yeah. that's unsettling. And, look, I, I get... Why streaming is nice And I do it all the time too For most of my TV stuff I use Netflix and Amazon And Hulu and whatnot, And that's great But it is for stuff You really care about 
physical media is a good thing because it keeps an archival version around. And this is a good example because The Simpsons is one of the best and most significant American yeah. TV shows of all time. And if this is happening to that show, that's reason to worry. Yeah. And there are a lot of shows right now that are great that are not getting good releases. Like um, The Americans is one of the best shows on TV right now. It's on FX and also a Fox thing. So mm -hmm. The Americans had a DVD and Blu-ray release for season one. And they're done. They're, they're doing DVD MOD releases, manufactured on demand, but that's it. And that is too good a show and too artistic a show, I think, to not have an easily archived HD version of it. It is easily available digitally in that stuff, but not in any format where you can just own it. It's all streaming. So that means that if you, you, know, if you buy an episode of TV on Amazon or iTunes, you don't own that. You just own yeah. a license to stream it. That's it. And that's, that can be scary sometimes because these companies seem like they're going to be around forever and many of them might be around for a long time but their policies can change yeah they can lose the rights to those things you know so it's just a it's a weird thing and i think the simpsons is now in this weird chokehold where if i want to watch an episode of the simpsons maybe i can go find a used dvd and that's okay yeah or i can pirate it you mm -hmm. know and why would you want to be giving consumers one of those two choices exactly and i think there's a way to make this all okay you know you can you know, we're still in the infancy overall of streaming in the digital future, and there are ways to improve it, like letting people, as we have done with music for years now, download it without digital yeah, rights management. Exactly. But we're not anywhere near that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a weird, or quick, weird thing. Quit tying your fucking streaming services into cable. Yeah, <laughs> I like, don't get that. I because my parents had to do some like cable stuff recently, and as a result of it, like they got HBO, and like yeah. having to go over there. And figure out like HBO Go and like like okay, what do we have access to? How do we like like all this stuff? It's like fuck, it's fucking fuck cable, dude. Yeah. How do, why how and why do people deal with that shit anymore? Like I just like no, no, there's enough good stuff to watch that I don't need to bother with that. I will go do something else with my time. I totally agree. Yeah, I. It's so stupid, and you know HBO. It seemed like they were going to fight the good fight, and this HBO Now thing was going to come out that would be unbundled from cable. But no, instead, it's just bundled with Apple, and unless you own an Apple TV or an iPhone, you literally cannot access it. Yeah. So it's no better. It's the exact same. Yeah, thing. It's like really weird. That, like yeah, a lot of these fantastic content providers are stuck in this weird like wrestling match with these people that have like the ability to restrict. Yeah. Have like who and how you can access it. It's like. You know, like, you can't get HBO Go on Sony platforms through Comcast. Right. Because Comcast is like, fuck you, Sony. And it's like, well, what? What? That's that's crazy. That's, like, that's insane that I am not able to access it on my fucking PS4 that I can on my Xbox 360 because Comcast doesn't want to make the deal with Sony. Like, there's so many companies that have to do all these different relationships through that structure that it's like, it makes no sense. And me, it's like the user... Has no power to engage with it in any way. Yeah. So it's just all that stuff so is just burn it all to the ground. That's what I say. Yeah. Burn it to the ground. Bring back X Files. <laughs> just you know, all I'm saying, be wary of of these companies. They they don't have your best interest at heart. Yeah. That's yeah. In any case, so yeah, um, Game of Thrones will still be difficult to watch for a lot of people this year. That's yeah. the main takeaway. And I would think having one of the single biggest shows on television would make HBO want to make it easier for people, but no. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. And I just... I am totally out of the Apple ecosystem now. Like, I, I have my last device, which is the exact same with my first device, which is my iPod Classic. I'm right, came full circle. Right. But I cannot watch HBO Go on my iPod Classic. Yeah. How is your Apple-less reality? Are, is that, are you happy there? I'm much happier. Is it nice? Yeah. It's nice. The, I, maybe next week I'll talk about it more. Android, 
is really cool. Yeah. I like my phone. My phone has some issues right now, but that's on the carrier level. Um, the phone itself is, is fantastic. Definitely the best phone I've ever had. And Android, you know what's nice? I can what? just plug it into my computer, access the file system, and drag my music into it. Yeah. And then on the phone, I can access the file system and delete stuff if I want to. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Apple, man. Yeah. Fuck them. Fuck yeah. them. Anyway, let's. Uh, we can make fun of Apple all day, but let's go ahead and talk about something that is fun, which is... This movie actually isn't that much fun, but yeah. you know what I mean. Uh, it's really sad and depressing, but in very different ways. Than Apple is. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so our main topic today, we're going to talk about Persona 3, the movie, number two, Midsummer Knight's Dream, spelled with a K there, because you got to, you know, got to keep people on their feet, yes. right? And you that, have to engage the pun. Yes. And indeed, that is the full title of the movie. So if you go back to around this time last year, we recorded an episode on Persona 3, the movie, number one, Spring of Birth. I like your commitment to saying the full titles of the movie. You got I to. I really That's... appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, no. I'm totally with you on that. And uh, Persona 3, the movie, number one, Spring of Birth, we both enjoyed, right? Yes. Immensely. Yeah. So let's recap. What did what were we so impressed with by that movie? And you know, how did it exceed our expectations? What was the basis of our discussion there? Um, I think the main thing was there's like there's like the concern is that when you're adapting a game like Persona Three that is so huge and that does not necessarily have sort of like clearly demarcated spots where you could pick up and drop off movies. Like there are like good ideas about where you could, but it's not like like, you, there are some choices that have to be made in terms of how you structure that. So the, I think the, the question was always, how are they going to be able to try to adapt this, like, into a movie series? Where are they going to cut it off? And then, for me, the biggest question by far was, how, what are they going to do about the main character who, well, who has some sort of implied characterization through, like, the dialogue choices that are available to you and the ways that some people react to him in the game? The main character is more or less an empty vessel like like the vast majority of what the main character is is sort of filled in by the player character by an the avatar. player himself yeah and so there's a huge amount of room there and and when you have a huge amount of room with the adaptation that's a huge amount of room to either improve or to seriously fuck up what you're doing and there's a legitimate fear about like well they're just not going to know what to do with the main character and if you can't do the main character well the whole core of the story falls apart like especially when you get to the end if you've not built an interesting main character for that story it's going to do nothing for you so the first movie what they did that was really remarkable is that they created an interesting main character but they also created an interesting main character who had an arc to complete throughout that movie that also like is something that spoke to the larger sort of storyline for Persona 3, which was that he is someone who was emotionally, completely emotionally detached because of his losing his parents when he was a child and stuff like that, and then moving back into uh, Tatsumi Port Island and sort of, like, engaging with the Persona fights and meeting all these people. He slowly sort of, like, realizes that there's some value to life that he didn't realize before. And that's sort of, like, what that movie did. And that was really incredible. It was really smart. And it was all sort of on the adaptation side to do that. So, like... You know, there's all the sort of key moments from that section of the game was still there, but it was all focused around this sort of created storyline for the movie about that main character, and I think they pulled it off spectacularly. Absolutely. I mean, the big thing was it felt like a movie. Like, yeah. I think we could quibble, would someone who didn't play the game, could they enjoy it? And I think overall, yes. Yes. There was a lot of things, a lot, a lot of, like, intricacies with, like, characters and stuff would yeah. be lost because it doesn't have the time. But. but overall, it did feel like a movie, a good movie. Um, it wasn't just a video game walkthrough or something. Exactly, yeah. It, and it has, and I think, so everything you said, totally agree with that. On top of that, they did it with such an incredible sense of style. That mm -hmm. first movie, the animation, better than either of us could have imagined, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. 
Because, like, the the thing we had before this was Persona 4, the animation, which hopefully we can talk about in an upcoming episode because I'm still working my way through that. And, you know, that's a really cool show and everything. Uh, and the animation is really nice, but it's not like they broke the bank with it. Yeah, it's not... yeah, it's, it's definitely, you can see the, I mean, as with most anime, like, TV shows, you can see the budget in the show. Right. And not in, like, a, oh, they got so much money. It's like, you if you're sort of a skilled viewer, you can see, like, oh, this is why they use this shot. And, yeah. like, why nobody's moving in this shot and stuff like that. Yeah, like, there are budget concerns with that. Whereas with the movie... I don't know how much money they had to make, but like you can't you can't tell by watching it that they did not have enough money. There doesn't look like there's any artistic yeah, compromise. In exactly. fact, they really reached very far with the visuals, and they kind of picked up where the animated cutscenes in the game left off. Where the animated cutscenes were these weird, surrealistic, yeah. like were you know very disconjointed and just very off-putting and disorienting kind of uh, visual style, and they kind of pumped that up for the movies yeah. even. And so, just the animation is gorgeous, but also very smartly directed, well-paced. The action is incredible, but also yeah. it doesn't feel like you're watching the game. It feels like they made it make sense in a yeah. movie universe. So, Although, at the same time, I thought it was really interesting, and they do the same thing with this movie, that, like, with the boss shadows, they, like, they are the boss shadows in true, the game. That's true. And they even replicate, like, the boss fight mechanics in the fight scenes in the show... In a way that, like, I think works pretty well. Like, it makes the, the it adds an interesting dynamic that makes them like sort of interesting fights that don't feel like like oh this is just another fight scene. Like this is yeah. a fight scene where the characters have to employ some strategy and there's something going on there. Yeah, they do that, and so it's kind of fun to watch it because you're like, I know what you have to do. You yeah, know, use use electricity or something. Um, and it's it's interesting, like, because in Persona Four, the animation. They had would have the same boss enemy designs visually, but often how things played out was very different. Yeah, which is fine. That's another good way to do it. But yeah. I almost find this even more impressive because they're hewing closer and kind of getting more out of it. It's weird. Exactly. Yeah. Like at the end of this movie, the second one, when they do the the the, the rotating yeah, wheel, the roulette wheel, the roulette guide, wheel yeah. I thought they would have to change that because yeah. that's such a weird. That is a very bizarre boss fight for Persona. Yeah. And, and it's especially, like, a really weird boss fight to have when you do not have the video game mechanics, right. like, present. Because, and they have it in the fucking movie that it's, like, one of the potentials on the roulette wheel. It's just, like, a heart with HP written on it. Yeah. And it's, like, I don't know how that makes sense within the context of, like, the reality of the movie. But, but it feels natural, Yeah, it works. It? The yeah, whole thing, totally yeah. Does. So that's everything. And, of course, it had great music and great voice acting. Of course, these are only in Japanese so far, which is actually new for me, at least, and I know... For you a little bit. Mostly, like, I yeah. have some, like, I've played a lot of Persona 4 Arena with the uh, Japanese voices, and I've All watched right. some clips online with Japanese yeah. voices, but yeah. So this was a reintroduction to me for the characters, because I've only heard the, the dub that's on the games, and I really love that dub, and I know you do too, so yeah. it's it's interesting um, to hear the Japanese voices. But yeah, so all of that would be setting the stage, and now we've got movie two here. Really quick, let's go through, like we did last year, what's in the package. All right. Because I spent 80 goddamn dollars yeah. on this thing, I'm going to talk about it, yeah. darn it. But it's, you know, what we said last year is, okay, this is an obscenely expensive Blu-ray set. Yeah. But it's also... For like a 90-minute movie. But it's a premium set. Exactly. You don't yeah. get anything that's nice in America anymore. So, nice, like, hard box it comes in with really nice art on the front. We've got Igus yeah. here. Looks gorgeous. Yes. I like it. Uh, and then now it says on the side, uh, where it said here last year, Memento Mori, Remember You Will Die. Now yeah. it's Carpe Diem Seize the Day. Yeah. Which is, uh, pertains to the themes of the film. In any case, we got the box here. I wonder um, what Latin they're going to use next time. Yeah. Then you got the main Blu-ray case, which is the same kind of thing as last year. It's got two panels. And you got the Blu-ray, and you got the soundtrack CD. I have not listened to the CD yet because I wanted to see the movie first, but 
the music in this movie was great. Yeah. So I'm excited to listen to this. Yeah. And uh, definitely. I've got it ripped and everything. But it's cool you get this. The CD alone is like worth a lot to me. Because yeah. I love the music in these movies and in the games. Then you get, let's see, you get two booklets. One of which is just the original booklet that would come with the Japanese release. All the text is in Japanese. Got lots of nice artwork and concept art and things. And then I think at some point it's got a preview of the next movie in here. Because the last one did too. Yeah, so here's images from number three, Falling Down. Yes. So we see some Ryoji and stuff like that. And of course, the their advertisement for the Persona 3 stage show. Which will yeah. never cease to freak me out. It's Hopefully one day... Through some bizarre miracle that like comes over here like one night. Well, they've got the DVD. That's what they're advertising. Oh. So yeah, if so you want, yeah, you don't even need to go see it live. Yeah, and then they've got the translation booklet. So this is basically, if you don't know, uh, and I'm kind of doing the pitch here. You cannot buy this anymore. It's totally sold out. Right. Yeah. And everything and out of print already. But in any case, what's cool about it is it's just the Japanese special edition release, but they've added subtitles to the disc and then this English translation booklet. That you can so you can follow along with the other one. So it's like it's a nice compromise. They can't maybe do a full you know dub and translation and everything for the whole set, but they can give you the subtitles and the basics of what you need. Yeah. So that's all in there. Um, and the subtitles once again they embellish some stuff weirdly. Yeah, yeah. There's some weird translation in like choices made, but nothing, nothing awful. Like, yeah, but it is nothing dramatic. Yeah. Some of Igus's lines I just noticed like that's not what she's saying. Yeah. You're really embellishing that. I mean, they're, but, they're, part of that was they're trying to sort of like get the robotic right. quality to no, her dialogue fine. across. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so then my favorite part of this whole set, and it's in this really cheap plastic that I've already broken. Oh well. Uh, let's see. You've so, ruined everything, Jonathan. I've you ruined everything. Just kill yourself. Like, that's yeah. worth nothing now. Yeah, well, the plastic doesn't so much matter, but what's inside is cool. I can't get this goddamn thing open. There we go. Yeah, this is. So they gave you a set of lobby cards. They did this last year. I wanted to show this to you because I love the art on these. They're yeah. basically the posters for the movie. And on the backside, they've got some more concept art. But there we go. So lobby cards are still a thing in Japan. They are not so much in America anymore. Little versions of the posters. But the posters for this movie were cool. Yes. So yeah, I like having these. Throw this plastic away. So we got that. And then, of course, the most important part of the entire set. It comes as a bonus on the outside. Is the sticker set. I haven't yes. looked at this yet comes in this big like cardboard envelope and then you got another little plastic thing let's see if i can do this better than i did the last one. Oh, there you go this is easier so let's look at the persona 3 stickers there's chibi igus and there's chibi personas yeah and there's polydeuces polydeuces okay yeah. i couldn't quite tell with the chibification but yeah uh i don't know that, that must that's ken yeah. i'm pretty okay. sure yeah, yeah. Oh, and you got the little sad girl from the park. Yeah, she's, nice. in, she's in the scene of the movie. She is. So, yeah. And you got Koromari with everyone. So, yeah, there's your stickers. I still have not used any of my stickers from the last set. You should just, but... once, like, you get all four of the sets, yeah. you should just go crazy and, like, completely cover your laptop or something with them. <laughs> like, you'll have so many of these stickers stockpiled. Yeah. Yeah. I could do something special with that. I could get a poster board and put them all on there to display or something. But, yeah. Or just on my walls of the room. Or just on your face just like and you never take another shower it's just yeah persona sticker face all right well anyway so yeah you get your stickers anyway so it's a nice set as last year and i should say on the disc itself you got a couple of bonus features mainly uh things like um trailers and stuff the yeah. big thing is that it's got both the theatrical and extended cut of the film we watched the extended cut and i actually learned because i went back and rewatched the first film before we watched this 
And uh, the theatrical cut, I tried to watch that version just because I wanted to see what the differences were. It does not have subtitles. They only no. subtitled the extended version, which is fine. I did. I still went through and just saw what was different, and the extended cut is better. They added some good things. It's mainly like those scenes where they'll be at school and you see other people from the game. Sure, yeah. It's that kind of fan servicey stuff that isn't essential, but I actually think evens the pace out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. And I like having yeah. that. So anyway... That's the set. You get all of that stuff. And even if it's not subtitled, I like having both versions of the movie there just for completion's sake. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely good. And I'm. it lines up totally with the other movie, so I'm excited to have all four on the shelf in a couple of years. Yeah. So definitely nice. Um, but let's talk about the movie itself. Okay. So I think the first thing I'll say... Well, let's see. I'm trying to think where to start. Let's do some general reactions. Okay. So... I'll start because you said, you said your piece kind of on it earlier in the episode. Sure, yeah. So I'll just give my little more in-depth piece... I overall was super impressed by this movie. I uh, the amount of like depth of feeling I think it conjured by the end and also just by the middle and everything is is really extreme and it's a very different thing than the game. But I like that. I think this movie really shows that they are embracing the differences that cinema allow over video yeah. games, and I think they're conveying similar story points and similar emotions, but in a cinematic means. And that's a really key thing when you're doing an adaptation like this. Mm-hmm is that I feel like I could, for years to come, play the game again or watch the movies again, and I'm getting the same story, but they're very different experiences. Yeah. And this is a different interpretation of those experiences. So I think the biggest piece of praise I could offer this is I think they made some incredibly intelligent adaptation decisions throughout this, where they actually veered away from the game more than they did in the first movie. Yeah. So you have Ken uh, Kenamata, who's the little kid, uh, elementary school persona user, being... Very different than he is in the game. His motivations are very different. Sure, his sort yeah. of reactions to things are different. Um, they've, they've just his personality is a lot more varied. And I think on that level, actually, this is a huge improvement over the game because I think the Ken part of the game is pretty messy. Yeah, I think they did a really good job with it here, and that also gets into Shinji's story. And I think they did a great job with him. And a lot of that again is different than how it's presented in the game, but in a very smart way. And similarly, like just how they introduce Igus and how they use Igus during this part of the story where she is not. She's a big like component of your day-to-day life playing the game, but you can't convey that in the movie. Yeah. So they made some smart choices of like, here's where we're going to introduce Orgia mode, and here's how she's yeah. going to come into action, and just really smart cinematic moments. And I think that was true throughout. The thing is, though, in this part of the game, this movie has to introduce a huge amount of characters. You have yeah. Igus, Ken, Shin... You saw Shinji a little bit last time, but yeah. for all intents and purposes, he's introduced Koromaru. So that's four people of yeah. Cs you have to introduce. You have to introduce uh, Mitsuro's father for that part of the game. Yeah. You have to do a massive exposition dump, and you have all three members of Strega. Yeah. And I will say, for the amount of shit they had to throw in this movie while also having it feel like a movie with a spine and a beginning, middle, and ending and all that, I think they did wonderfully. Yeah. Overall, it holds up really well. It never fully feels like it's buckling under the weight of any of these things. That being said, inevitably at the beginning, there's some awkwardness. Yeah, definitely. And I felt for a while, I'm like, okay... There's just there's a metric shit ton of, of exposition you have to deliver here, and I think they're doing it very well, but still with some problems. Yeah. But once it kicks into gear and the the characters kind of all come together, I thought they balanced all the character arcs, including the main character again, in a way that was so very impressive, and ultimately it has a cumulative power that is much bigger than the first movie could have just by virtue of where the first movie had to end. Yeah. So that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, definitely. It's something that it's like... It's something where this movie, because sort of like, I wouldn't say the first half, but maybe like the first third or so, it's focused on something so different than the last two thirds, or the last two thirds of the movie are like really laser honed in on 
the Ken and Shinji stuff, and then within the background, this sort of like character uh, dynamic where a lot of the characters are struggling with the idea of like fighting the shadows is what like has given us this sort of like sense of purpose in our lives, but like the whole the end goal of fighting the shadows is to destroy all of the shadows. So it's like our the thing that is giving us our purpose is the exact purpose that's going to end that thing. So it's like this weird loop that these characters are stuck in trying to figure out what are we going to do while you have this sort of this character dynamic where Ken's mom has been killed, you know, before the the story and him trying to figure out what that's about and Shinji sort of dealing with that grief that he's actually the one who did it, you know. Like that, it, it's a, the last two thirds have a very strong core and a lot of stuff to deal with. Whereas, like the first third is, like you said, it's just a bunch of exposition where you have, you know, some fun stuff like them going to the beach and stuff. That's like, hey, we you get the like the babe hunter operation. Oh, and there are some laughs in there that are just incredible. Yeah, they and they they get some good like new gags in there, particularly with the Shinji Aiga scene. Let's just say really quick, the best gag in the whole movie yeah. is all all three of the main females in the group at this point, um, Fuka and Yukiko and Yukiko Yukari. Yeah, I'm sorry, Yukari. They're both the healer, you know. Sure. Yeah. Yukari and Mitsuru all come out, and and Junpei is just super, you know, into all of them. And then Mitsuru, like, come, oh yeah, like because yeah. like you know he's a he's a high school boy, right? He's really stoked. And Mitsuru comes out, and of course she's the most beautiful of all of them. And Junpei is like, you know, a hound dog. And then in the corner of the frame, Shinji just goes... Akihiko just like leans in and goes, hmm. (laughs) He's just like... Because, you know, he's so focused on his like manly man boxing stuff. He doesn't usually have time for women. It's like, yeah, the way he delivers that just like grunt, it's very, very funny. And they, they just they play with that whole sequence in a way that, again, is very different than how the game would do it, but in a way that conjures my memories and is very funny. Yeah. But as you say, go on. Yeah, but then it moves into from that, like, this massive fucking dump of exposition where yeah. Mitsuru's dad comes out and is like, here's what happened ten years ago, and here's we got a clip of Yukari's father and, like, all this stuff, and then you have to introduce Igis and, like, you know, that's there's stuff happening, but it is very much bogged down in... We are explaining all this stuff to you in a very matter-of-fact way, which is how the game handles it, and like that works better in the game because the presentational style of that scene in the game is not super different from the rest of the sort of because you know it's just a lot of people talking, which is what well, a lot of the story just, of the game is. That's just a standard thing in Persona games. You, yeah, you will have to stop for a couple hours every once in a while and just listen to exposition. Yeah, but it's something that's like in that format where the dialogue is right. so such a part of like the delivery mechanism of the story of the game that that doesn't feel out of place whereas in these movies are like move so well and they don't linger on scenes very long because there's so much material to get through that like it feels very jarring when you just are have like all the characters standing in a room together and all of them talking for like five minutes it's very it's just so different from the rest of the movie that it just feels like a concession that they made because they couldn't figure out a more interesting way to sort of like change up how they would deliver that exposition. And I'm unsure what to say about it because it is a really tough thing to do. I wouldn't want to be in that creative position. And I think they're doing just about everything humanly possible to make those scenes interesting. I mean, the camera angles they're choosing and the imagery they're giving you, there's a lot of beautiful stuff in there. I think particularly the scene where Yukari is out on the beach during the dark hour and it's the blood sea and she is talking to Makoto about her feelings and what happened to her dad. That is one of the most gorgeous scenes I've ever seen in animation. But I can still kind of feel my eyes glazing over because it's a lot of exposition. Yeah, and it also, like, it's a really important scene that comes so early on in the movie that it's like, for a cinematic storytelling format, 
Like, that's a scene that feels like it should come in, like, the middle or near the end of a movie, right. you know? Whereas, like, this, you know, maybe if you watch the movies back-to-back, it would feel maybe a little bit more natural, but it comes in so early on that it almost feels like when you're watching, like, the last Hobbit movie or something, and they're, like, fulfilling stuff from the end of the last movie. It's almost kind of like that where, obviously, in the game, it does not have that problem because that scene comes in, like, fucking tens, dozens of hours into the game. Is for the movie, it being right at the beginning of the movie... And then Yukari doesn't have a lot else to do for this movie. Like, she has... Like, all the characters are served in different ways. But, you know, that sort of aspect of her character doesn't really come back up again until, like, the next part. Where right. she has to deal with that stuff with Mitsuru. That it just kind of... It feels like it's something that... Like, they just really wanted to get to the Shinji and Ken stuff. Because that's the sort of the core material of the movie. And they just had to deal with this. As a, as a matter of fact of adapting the game. But it's interesting because, so we have kind of poor pace for maybe half an hour. But then when the movie, they get back to, you know, Gekakon High and to Tatsumi Port Island and they start getting into stuff. This movie is paced, I think, really well after yeah, that point. Definitely. Because they move through like five months of stuff. Yeah. They are soaring through this game. Yeah, they're like and, those scenes where they cut to the calendar and it's just yeah. like, and it like skips a whole month. And then for me, like my psychological response having played the game so much is that stresses me the fuck yes, out when yes. I see all those days going yep. by. It's like, you're missing social like, opportunities. It's like, you need to go to Tartarus. It's like, it fucking, it stresses me out so much when the movie does that. Absolutely. But within that, I mean, they are pretty laser focused on what they want this movie to be about while also giving, I think, everyone an opportunity to yeah. shine and giving all these perspectives. And I really felt clicking into place in the last half of this movie just the tapestry effect, which is what Persona is to me, yeah. is this ensemble of characters. And yeah, your avatar matters and the main character matters in a central position, but this really is about the larger perspective. And I think it's something the Persona 4 animation does really well once it kind of gets into its own rhythms. And it's something this movie is able to, now that we've got pretty much everyone there, yeah. uh, it, it does so well. And I think the main themes in that last hour of the film, um, kind of the stuff with Ken and Shinji and basically this ambivalence of finding yourself in this horrible situation and having the best time in your life and yet it is transient and what do you do about that and that to me is the, that is the question of the game we're not on to the death stuff yet yeah. but that is what Persona 3 is about and I thought the most beautiful scene I almost teared up at this I thought this was such a beautiful scene is where they go to the festival together at the summer festival yeah. in, at the uh, temple and you know Ken is going with Shinji because at this point he's Shinji's number one fan yeah. and that stuff and, and Ken has really found himself and he's happy for the first time and everyone feels that and they're watching the fireworks and Ken says you know oh I wish this could last forever and you see everyone thinking that to some degree yeah that is Persona 3 in a nutshell mm -hmm. is this you know what do you do about the just the, the nature of transience in human life yeah and that's the question yeah, it's also they have that really fantastic scene between the main character and Faros, which is like the only yeah. time Faros pops up where he's sort of. I forgot he was in it. Yeah, he's talking to him because like he comes in when the main character is dealing with those questions, and he comes in and talks. So it's like, you know, you can't change, like you can't stop change, like you're going to change no matter what. Yeah. It's like you just have to kind of accept that fate that you have. And then I mean, it ties together really well because the ending, Wyatt hits it lands the punch it lands isn't just how it's presented but because they build up those themes it's all these characters not wanting to confront the end of something and yeah. then forced to confront the end of a friend's life yeah like this like it, like that sort of the last two thirds of the movie are kind of composed almost like in a Shakespearean tragedy sort of sense in that yeah. way of like 
understood like the viewer knowing implicitly like even if you haven't played the games it's pretty obvious that you know Shinji if Shinji is not necessarily the guy who killed Ken's mom it's pretty obvious that he was involved in some way and they're like not just they're just kind of like talking around it that you know as the viewer that that has to come at the end like that that encounter has to come and that you cannot hide from it but the characters are spending the whole movie trying to avoid addressing that situation yeah and I mean it the end of this movie is incredible I yeah. think the the way they stage those last couple scenes particularly once the bullet has gone in and Shinji is dying they you know he says his last words and he collapses and I was expecting because the game does this and all movies do this we would get a big no from someone yeah. or a cry or something but no like for 30 seconds the soundtrack just goes away we're just watching these anguished looks they literally don't know what to feel yeah, like Ken's just on the ground like sobbing, sobbing quietly yeah. and his tears are dropping to the ground yeah, yeah and like it's uncomfortable to listen to that performance uh, whoever plays Ken great in this movie yeah yeah. Um, he actually sounds like a kid in Japanese that's yeah. great not an old chain smoking woman uh, anyway, uh, Ken is an old chain smoking woman. Yeah, heart, though. right. But anyway, you know, so those anguished tears, and then you get this one little, you know, like you know, broken cry from him at the end of the scene, but not with like a dramatic angle or anything. Yeah. It's just he's he's just he's this is coming out involuntarily, and then it's the funeral the next day, and and Junpei is acting out, and everyone else is kind of broken, and then it's just on Makoto's face. Yeah, and he's just like this expression of anguish. Yeah, because he doesn't say anything like for that whole last stretch of the movie. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. That's the movie, and it's like, holy shit, they did it. That's yeah. I think it honestly hits maybe even more powerfully than in the game in some ways because in the game that's part of your daily life. It doesn't have this thematic concentration of this one portion of something. Yeah, it's definitely like in the game a huge part of the impact I think comes from having had Shinji as a like party member. Yes who's with you all the time for, like, several months of the game. Right. He's like, you know, he's just one of those guys that, in the game, every time you come back to the dorm, you just walk around and talk to everyone and see what everyone's doing. Yeah. And you build the relationship that way. Whereas in the movie, they, you know, they're able to really focus in on the Ken and Shinji stuff. And I'm absolutely with you that they do the Ken stuff in particular way better. Largely, I think, because they're, you know, not restricted the way the games are to primarily the player character's point of view. Right. It's like in the movie they can, you know, you don't have a huge amount of time just like with Ken on his own in scenes, but you do have several scenes that are either just Ken or Ken with one or two other characters. Right. And the main character is not involved and that really gives you some insight into him as a person that makes the ending a lot more impactful whereas the game just didn't have the opportunity to handle it and it is one of like the the well, few downsides of the game storytelling yeah and again Persona 3 best game ever made but yeah. I do think that actually is the biggest problem in the storytelling in Persona 3 is it's and I totally see what you're seeing it is that point of view thing is part of it I also just think from the moment they introduce Ken he knows it's Shinji he knows what he right, wants yeah. to do and that's months of the game is, is Ken just being mopey about it and it's basically a less annoying version of Hope from Final Fantasy 13 sure. where he wants to get his revenge and you're basically just saying well shit or get off the pot kid Jesus yeah. and he never does and then it finally comes and I think they kind of lose the character in there and they're able to rehabilitate him afterwards a little bit yeah, but not a ton and that character just kind of doesn't ever leave the impact he needs to whereas in this it's a really complex dynamic like he yeah. doesn't know it's Shinji at first and in fact he loves Shinji like Shinji is his hero yeah Shinji Shinji's a pretty cool fucking dude yeah like look at that fucking motherfucker he's fucking badass right. So his friendship with Shinji is actually a kind of rehabilitating thing for him. It's helping him learn to 
care for people again, to feel happiness, all of this yeah. stuff. And that makes the betrayal sting more. And I think it colors the... Because they do the scene with um, Strago where he's trying to kill Shinji. Yeah. Mostly like the game. But it's recolored at this point because yeah, you definitely. can tell Ken doesn't know what he's saying. Ken doesn't know what he's feeling. Ken is, I think, very confused about everything at that yeah. point. Whereas in the game, it's just kind of an inevitability. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it really builds with a certain power. And yeah, I... You know, I, and I, it also offered me something, a new interpretation on the game, which I always like in an adaptation. Yeah. Don't just show me what I've already seen. It's like, this is a new perspective on Ken and yeah. that relationship. So it, it feels very new to me, and I like that. Because, you know, I've spent hundreds of hours with this game. Yeah. I like seeing something new. Yeah, definitely. It, it's definitely, it's something that's really great about this movie, is that it allows, like, it's mostly Ken's movie. Like, it's mostly, which is so interesting, because he is, like, the least interesting character from the game, probably. Like, the least of the main cast. Yeah. He's so boring. I mean, obviously, Koromaru doesn't have a character, but Koromaru's just really cool. Koromaru's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's nice to kind of, like, have him just be in the movie so Koromaru can just be right. there doing stuff. Yep. But, yeah, like... Being he, a he, badass. He has some cool scenes yeah. in this. <laughs> yeah. But, it's, yeah, it's definitely, like, allowing Ken to be the sort of the main character for most of the movie definitely just makes him so much more interesting and makes that arc so much more compelling but then yeah the movie also the, a lot of the fact that like it's Shinji is so important that like Akihiko also becomes really important in a way that his character well I really like Akihiko he has moments where he kind of can be very bland in the game you know that in this like you know his sort of emotional duress about his friend basically dying because he knows he's taking that medicine like that makes that last fight scene so tense you know that you know that Akihiko's just like I need to fucking get out of here to, like, go help my best bud, you know? Yeah. I know. It, it really recolors everyone and, and just adds a lot to so many people's arcs in the film. Yeah. Uh, another thing I want to say, so we have them fighting a lot of shadows. Like, the majority of the 12 shadows are fought and defeated in this movie. Yeah. And I think if you told me that and said, oh, they're going to fight, like, seven shadows in this film, I would say, that sounds like a bad movie. I don't know yeah. how they would do that. They actually turn it into this strength where the amount of fights yeah. you have to do, it becomes this rhythmic thing we return to that uh, like shows us where our character's state of mind is every time. And they do a lot of great... The staging is so creative and it's it, they're so fun to watch. But also they become these big kind of orchestral character pieces and character motifs for the yeah. film uh, that really does add this rhythm to the pace of the movie that I think is actually really beneficial. Yeah, and it allows them to sort of, like, a lot of their really big moments happen in the fight scenes, you know, like yeah. Shinji being able to come in during a fight scene, and then Shinji being, like, losing control of his persona during a fight scene. Like, a lot of those sort of, like, big climactic moments in the plot benefit from, like, being couched in this, like, big, awesome fight scene. And then it also, like, adds that sense of, you know, that the main character's duress of... I don't want this to be over because this is like the best my life has been as far as I can remember because my parents died in front of me when I was like five years old, you know? So it's like that sense of almost kind of like when you're watching a movie you really enjoy or like when I was playing Bloodborne of like, I don't want this to be over. It's like, but the more I do it, the sooner it's going to be over. It's like when you're watching the movie, you know, the pace at which they're fighting the shadows picks up more and more. And so you get that sense of the main character's duress is like, I don't want to do this because the, if I beat the shadow, it's like there's only like three more, man. Like that's and then what the fuck do I do with the rest of my life? And I think they play that pretty subtly, all things considered. There's yeah. not like five different scenes where they underline that point. Yeah, there's really only one, and I think it's it's well done. It's it's when they're at uh, Wild Duckburger, 
Right, and, yeah. What's is that what's called? I think this, uh, yeah. Third, yeah. And and it's just because you hear and I think it's because it's Fuka they Yeah, give I the really line like to. that they give it to Fuka. Yeah. yeah. It's that's a really smart choice that like it allows the main character to keep his, that sort of element of himself that like he is like the most emotionally immature person like on the planet. Like he has no idea what he's feeling, you know? Right. So like him you know, because he really, there's a certain point of the movie where he has, like, almost no lines, you know? Yeah. Like, the most he says for, like, the last half of the movie is, like, hey, we should go to Tartarus. Like, he says that, like, five times. And it's, yeah. like, kind of the only dialogue he really has for most of that section of the movie. Because he's just there observing everything that's going on because he's so embroiled in that turmoil. He doesn't know what to do with it. And nobody is focusing on him the way in the first movie, you know, like... Yukari kind of like focused on him and sort of like pestered him to sort of get his tech character come out, but nobody's doing that for him for this movie. So it's like he's kind of left to his yeah. own devices. And then I think just again the way they end it, they leave all of that just hanging. They don't give you the denouement where Shinji goes or uh, uh, Akiko. Akiko, sorry, Akiko yeah. goes and talks at Shinji's grave. They yeah, don't give you scissor. everyone. Yeah, you don't see everyone the next day dealing with it. It's just on what it needs to be, which is this moment of realization, and we know as the audience this is going to change them. Whether you play the game or not, you get that this is a turning point for yeah. everyone. And that these these all these arcs have been resolved in a tragic sense. Yeah. But you don't need to go any further. And they're really smart on that. And then one thing that, like, I'm curious how they're going to go forward with this, because it's probably one of the biggest changes is that whole story arc they make for the main character, because, you know, obviously it's the big, biggest change, of that dilemma that he has is totally manufactured for the game. But, like, the way that manifests in that last fight scene is that, in a certain way, the main character is responsible for Shinji getting killed because since he does not take charge of the fight and doesn't cause that fight to end sooner, like, Shinji gets shot. Whereas if yeah. he had not hesitated and ended that fight, Akiko might have been able to make it, you know? So I'm curious how, like, what they're going to do with that because they don't point that out. And it was something that, like, I was thinking about the entire time, especially when, like, it lingers on his expression. That must be part of what he's thinking about is, like, this is my fucking fault. Like, because I was hesitating so much and didn't want this to end, I let Shinji get killed, basically. Yeah, and I think that is the big turn, and they're going to have to confront it, is probably that hesitation goes away now, I think. Yeah. They've, they've, they've learned their lesson to a certain degree, and there are many more things to do. Like, I, I think it is interesting that, so we've got two of the four movies now, and, and I should say, now that the third movie is out in Japan, it is confirmed four is the end. Yeah. We didn't technically know before, but mm -hmm. yeah, we could all assume. Uh, so we've got two, and each of them has a pretty distinct arc for the characters. You know, what is that in three? What is that in four? Yeah. Uh, and I can tell where they're going with it, because they, <laughs> this is all in service of the main arc of the game, which is the death of the main character. Yeah. And the reactions to that. Um, and I think when they finally introduce those ideas, it'll be really powerful in these movies, because they will have seeded it so well. Yeah. One comparison I did want to make is that, you know, this whole movie being about that dilemma of... You know, this gives my life purpose, but by doing it, will I take my purpose away? Yeah. That paradox. That's actually something they did in the Persona 4 animation, too. But it's right, conspicuously yeah. the worst episode of that series to me. Sure, yeah. It's episode 12, and it's where they get the copycat killer, and they don't know it's the copycat killer yet because they aren't paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> and basically, so they're about to do it, and it feels like a weird filler recap episode where um, Naka... Nanahara, sorry. No, right, yeah. Yeah, Nanahara uh, is, he's about to, you know, do, deal the finishing blow and they're going to defeat this guy's shadow. And then it just suddenly cuts to the next day and he has this long imagination of what his life would be like if he didn't have this in his life and if, and all his friends abandoning him. And it's the right, whole episode. Yeah, yeah. 
But I think it's a really kind of nail-on-the-head, sledgehammer kind of version of it mm-hmm. with, you know, they didn't really seed it ahead of time. 20 minutes is too long to do the version of it they're doing and not long enough to do the good version of it. Right. So that episode just really drags to me and just doesn't work. And I and I, I think the Persona 4 animation is fantastic and really impressive. That's just an episode where I think they dropped the ball. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting. It's that That is the same idea at the heart of this movie. And this movie, for virtue of a, a bunch of different reasons, does it beautifully. Yeah. But it is a hard... It's a hard idea to talk about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's why there's there's so much kind of subtlety and grace to the way they tackle it. Here. It's, it's it's a weird thing because it's definitely something that's not like it's an idea to me that's not immediately relatable because people generally don't have you know that raison d'être. They don't have right. like this single thing that they're living for, and then even if they do. Like, it would probably be something like, I live for boxing, or I live for, like, writing, which is not something that, like, you know, you can write all you want. Like, you're, you know, maybe you will have, like, a situation where it's like, oh, I wrote my magnum opus when I was, like, 30, and then now, like, I can't write anything good past that. That's, like, a character drama that someone could identify with. But, like, this very specific thing, it's, like, it, it's really weird, but there's something about it that I definitely understand, and something like the, the way the characters react to it makes yeah. you really respond to it you know and the problem in Persona 4 too is that he's worried he's gonna lose his friends and we've seen that's just not gonna happen yeah because it's you know it's Narkami he's he's the pimp you know like there's no he has no problems making friends like that's his whole that's his raison d'etre is like he's just gonna make friends and be the coolest dude on the planet Makoto in these movies does not have that you know like there is like that's a to me a totally reasonable concern of his that like when we finish this like, these people are not going to be with me because it's, you never get the sense, like, you know, they're friends, but you don't get a lot of stuff. And this is true of the game as well. You don't get, like, of all the time they're just hanging out together, having fun together, because it's not necessarily what their relationship is. They're working together and fighting together, which is so different, you know. So there is that sense of, like, yeah, dude, like, when this is over, I'm not totally convinced that, like, all these people are going to stick around and you're going to be able to, like, pal around. Like, you're probably going to end up going back to that life you had of moping around, not really caring that you're living or dying because, like, nothing you're doing matters anymore. And it just takes an incredible amount of foresight to set up that arc because if the first movie didn't do what it did and didn't do it as well as it did, this movie couldn't exist. Yeah, because it's like, yeah, his, like, his whole character arc, and by extension a lot of the other sort of ancillary characters like Fuka and stuff, their character arcs, definitely hinge on you understanding that about the main character and, like, having gone through that in the first movie... That that first character arc in the first movie sets up this like completely. That without that, this would not make any sense. Yeah, which makes it like that definitely also helps like make it feel a very compelling sequel. You know that it's not just sort of picking up events chronologically, but it's a, like picking up events thematically and doing things with the characters that make sense off of what they did in the first movie. Which again is not stuff that happened in the games. Like that's stuff that they made for the movies to sort of like flesh out the movies and make them feel complete yeah. and cinematic. Absolutely, and it's like, I think it's just amazing, these obscure little Japanese animation movies, yeah. based on an obs- a relatively obscure game over here, it's a big game over there, obviously, yeah. Yeah. but it's also, they would be making these movies, right, yeah. Right. But, it's doing a better job with this multi-part movie thing than The Hobbit did, yeah. than the, the Hunger Games thing did, than all of these other like multi-part movies we're doing, yeah. that just basically feel like they took one movie and split it. Yeah. And honestly, like they're dealing with way harder material to adapt. Yes. Like there's no because like, you know, there aren't good video game movies. Like video game 
is a that's like that's just a material a medium to try to adapt a film that nobody has like cracked ways to do that whereas like with a book you know adapting you like you know adapting different things is never the same but we know ways to adapt books that work in movies and like the kind of things in books that you can cut and the kinds of things that you absolutely need to keep from books into movies like there are people that are very skilled at doing that with video games that doesn't exist like nobody knows how to adapt that and like what sort of like stuff to cut in the stories and where to add for these for these movies is like that's so difficult yeah but they're doing it brilliantly yeah. i mean mm-hmm. almost flawlessly yeah, at times because it's, it's something that's like you know for someone who's a, that's huge as a fan of the game as i am like some of the choices that they make in these movies in terms of character arcs that they put in are things that i never would have thought of like and i have like thought occasionally like how would you do this as a right. movie? Because this is a very interesting question in knowing that they're making movies that like some of these ideas that they have are things that I would n- that would never have occurred to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've thought about this too when they announced these, you know, like, and I thought, is it going to be three or four parts? And I would run through like, well, where would I end this? Where would I start this? What would the arc be? And yeah. I would never get as far as they could get on this. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's stuff like, like a standout scene to me just in terms of adaptation and adaptation just smarts yeah. is where you have and this is a new thing in the in the movie where uh, Mitsuru sends Makoto to kind of look over Ken and be his yeah. bodyguard mm-hmm. and then Ken goes out one night and that's how we are introduced to Koromaru and to Ken's persona and to all of that whereas in the game it's just yeah. oh look Koromaru fought the persona or, or the shadow that was cool yeah. and oh Ken has a persona so we're going to move him in and that works in the game just fine but that would never work in the movie and so it becomes this big dramatic moment that helps us get to know all the characters yeah. better and it, it really subtly gives the main character and Ken a connection yes. that like you know they need at least one scene because he's the main character like you need at least one scene where him and Ken are able to have just like a little something together and like you know they're, they don't have like a big character relationship but there is that like when you know Ken that moment of finality comes and Ken visits Makoto's room and like says like goodbye I'm sorry like that has impact because you do get that sense that like Makoto was the person who brought him in in the first place like he was a part of that and so it does build up that character relationship yeah absolutely and then things like you know how they get Shinji onto the team I love it it's it's that event where Strega locks them in that underground room and all is almost lost and then Shinji comes in and is a badass yeah that is a great great scene yeah and it's 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 a very much an inversion of what happens in the games there Mm -hmm. yeah Um, because what happens in the games honestly is that's an interesting sequence, but it's kind of, you know, it's not all that important. Yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah. one of their initial meetings with Strega. And I think all the Strega people they did a good job with. Yeah, like, it's it's nice to know that Takia in Japanese is just as, like, crazy and frightening as he is in English, you know? Because that was one of those, like, few characters in the, the dub that I thought, like, the dub version was so great, kind of like with Igis. Right. I was a little bit worried about the the Japanese version of the voice it's like I still don't like I think the Japanese I guess is fine I don't like think she has as much character no. in the voice as the English one does but I really love Japanese Takia he's fucking great and crazy he's cool <laughs> so he's, he's very good when he's delivering the speeches at the end and he's just like pointing his gun it's like this dude's fucking nuts but like he does like because the thing that he says in that the scene where Shinji comes in and that the main like he basically says to the main character that sets off those arcs like it does make sense like and the, it, he actually makes more sense in the movies than I think he does in the game where it's like you know you kind of understand his character motivations in the game but here I think because they address it a lot more upfront and you get scenes with Strega on their own like I, I kind of understand what Taki is getting at and what he's doing here and why he kind of has a point in the context of the world that these characters live in 
Yeah. It's like, he's the one who has chosen the other side of like, no, we're not going to fight against the Dark Hour. We're going to use the Dark Hour, then we're going to use this power to sort of sustain this because this is what makes us remarkable people and gives us a reason to live. So we're going to use that even if that ends up hurting people. Whereas the main character is like on that line of, well, I can do that or I can, you know, fight with my friends and ultimately maybe end up, you know, and literally end up knowing the ending, ushering in his own destruction. Because again, Strega and Takaya in particular, I don't think they really fully like pop thematically until the end of the game yeah and that's just by design yeah Yeah, because they just pop up here and there and they're actually like i think their their introduction into the story in this movie is one of the movies sort of like slippery parts that's not great because in the game you know you just have so much more time and lee to slowly set up like oh there's this group in the background called strega and they're like assassinating people and you kind of hear about them and don't know if they have any connection to anything and then they get introduced and you have like cheateries popping up that you can talk to on the bench and stuff the game uses that element to set them up really elegantly where it's like the movie it kind of just has to introduce them really quickly near the beginning and there's like there doesn't feel like there's a lot of like weight to them being introduced and you're like you know I know who they are but there's that sense of like when the camera pans up and they're on the rooftop you're like who the fuck are these guys yeah so and all the stuff with Chidori in this film is very much clearly set up for movie yeah. three where and I'm actually I, I'm glad the indication is there that they're going to do all that because I yeah. was wondering th- that might be something you would cut but it's, but, it's, but it's so important it for is. Junpei. No, it it's is. like, yeah, like that would break my heart if they cut that. Well, part. I know. I'm just wondering because yeah. you have time to do that much of a Junpei arc. But we'll see, clearly they are, and I'm glad about that. And yeah. I'm very excited to see the next film. But the stuff they do with Chidori here I think is really smart, particularly the scene where you just cut to that really weird shot of her yeah. dripping blood and then the box cutter. Because you hear about her cutting herself in the games... But you never, again, perspective, you never get to go there. Yeah. And I think having just that visceral, something is wrong with her, she's doing this to herself. Yeah. That really hits. Yeah, and it's a really smart, I, I also was really struck by that scene, because it's also a really smart sort of cinematic choice, because it's a, it's a fantastic instance of sort of that show-don't-tell thing. Right. That it's like, it, yeah, it just cuts to that scene, and at first, like, you don't really fully understand what's happening until, like, you get enough visual information to sort of piece together, like, who that is on the bed, and what... Like why she's on the bed and why there's blood there, you know. It's it's a yeah, it's a really elegant way to sort of set up that part of her character that's going to be so important later. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's just they do so much smart stuff in this movie. Yeah. Um, and in terms of visuals, I want to talk about that for a little bit because as good as the animation was in the first movie, I thought it was even better here. Mm-hmm. The just just the tableaus they do and the big background shots and and just. All the imagery during the dark hour. Yeah, the but also, aspect yeah. of the dark hour. But also even during the day, there's some scenes where they're out on the beach uh, on that island and it's just yeah. gorgeous. Some of the water effects. Yeah, they especially have, like and... with like when Igus is introduced in like the first yeah. few shots with her, like on that pier and stuff. Yeah. It's just incredible. And more than anything else, and I've been I would like to watch this movie again and kind of rethink about it. I, I've always said about these films and I said after we watched this movie it looks like they're throwing a ton of money at this. Yeah. But I wonder if it's that they have the budget to do this high level of animation. Because that's usually how we think about Japanese animation. is It's a budgetary thing a lot of the time. Yeah, because again, like so many shows have such a limited budget for what they're trying yeah. to do that you can... You can tell. Yeah, you can definitely tell if you're picking it apart. But I think what the thing might be here more than anything else is I really do think it's the direction. Like, yeah. obviously the animation, they've put a lot of effort into it, but I think why it has the impact it has isn't just that it, on a raw level, looks good. It's... And this direct, this is a different direction than the first film, and I think this guy, even more so than the first movie, 
really was committed to every shot is the unconventional version of that shot. Yeah. It's a shot that forces you to think about it. It's a shot that is kind of self-aware in its framing and the, in its oddities. Yeah. And that is always kind of keeping you off balance and is always disorienting and always drawing attention to itself in a good way. And I think that more than anything is what makes these shots amazing. Like there's a there's a great big tableau of the dark hour where Shinji is chasing Ken. He's found Ken this one night and he wants to wants to save this kid. Yeah. And he's just this big, wide, long shot of Tartarus in the distance and the whole town and the moon. And yeah. it's beautiful. And part of why it has that impact is that we pull that far back and we've got these two little figures in the front running. Yeah. It's not just that we threw a bunch of money and spent time on this. It's how we're framing it, how we're presenting it. Yeah. It's just, it's really incredible smart filmmaking more than anything else. Yeah, with, without a doubt. And there's definitely, it's actually something that, if for one of my classes, I very recently rewatched uh, The Shining, the yeah. movie. And, like, it was actually something that there are, I think, like, there's some similarities between, like, the way Absolutely. that shots are com- composited in this movie. In particular, like, you're talking about some of those, like, very wide tableau shots. Where it's like there are a lot of sustained shots with characters in the like far in the background, which is what Kubrick does all the time in The Shining. That is not how movies are like. Generally, you have characters taking up like most of the frame. You, you usually know? do medium shots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, they definitely. And then I also really love that even though you only have the Velvet Room once, they still do the weird off kilter askance like crazy angles in the Velvet Room, which is super appropriate because it's like yeah. it's supposed to be this weird dreamlike realm and like so you just have like this weird fucking low angle on Igor and shit and I do think this movie was improved for cutting the Velvet Room down yeah like the Velvet Room stuff's like that's just always so awkward for like trying to like it's it's awkward when you think about the literal reality of the game in terms of like why the fuck does the main character never mention that he's constantly visiting these weird like dream people that are giving him his power to summon multiple personas. Well, that's why it's so great in Persona 4 Golden when he has to yeah, tell when, them all. It, yeah. yeah, that finally gets addressed. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. a weird... Yeah, like, it's something that they have they have to, like, set it up because especially, like, the very ending, like, conversations with Igor become particularly important, you know? But, yeah, yeah, yeah it's definitely... But, you know, when you do get the Velvet Room, like, they make the most of it when they're there. And then also, even though they only have the one scene with Faros where there are, like, a couple of them in the first movie, I do like that they kill still kept that really weird, like, thing of where, you know, they just cut and Faros is just in yeah. a different spot and you never, like, it's another, like, sort of playing with cinematic convention that you never see him move around in frames. He just, it just cuts and he's there because he just sort of, like, teleports around. But it just implies that he teleports, which is a lot more right. interesting than actually see him teleporting, which is what he does in the games. Right. Or to have Makoto go, oh my god, you're teleporting. Yeah, that he just yeah. accepts the situation and is right. like, this is fucking weird, but whatever. I am I still want to get a shot in one of these movies where he is lying down under the covers and just moving his head slightly to look at Pharaoh. <laughs> oh yeah, like that's so great. Yeah. yeah. Is that really awkward? Like, huh? Yeah, it's so great. Uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, which is extra weird when you think about the Persona 3 portable version of it, where he's just staring at you. Does that mean Pharaoh's is like sitting on top of you and you're lying in bed? And yes. Just, yeah. Yes. Okay. Ferris just lives underneath your bed. He's yeah. just always there. <laughs> saying his weird fucking ghost kid shit. Yeah, Ferris is another weird character. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, so uh, let's see. And I, I like the Kubrick connection you just made. Because yeah. it is very Kubrickian. If Kubrick was so good at just using basic cinematic ingenuity more than... And obviously Kubrick had resources. And Kubrick yeah. had the money to realize his vision. But I think, again, the driving factor there wasn't the resources. But it was the creativity. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and then this movie also, like, it's really notable in the dark hour 
It's like just the use of color, you know? Mm-hmm. Because the Dark Hour allows them to play with color in really weird ways. It's just like the really deep, heavy greens, like the red moon and stuff like that. It's just that it's like, you know, in a normal reality that doesn't get to exist, but they just right. are able to play with that and play with like geometry in the Dark Hour. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting. This whole movie is so impressive. We should say the music is also very good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, uh, the main theme song that's at the beginning, "Fate Is in Our Hands," which I played at the start of this. That's I've been listening to that song for like the last year. I love that piece, and it's it's just used for a fight scene at the start, which is good. But then I think the end credit song, which is a much slower kind of ballad, is a really nice yeah. way to end the movie. Yeah, definitely very fitting, and it also has a really surprising but fantastic use of mass destruction, the battle yes. theme. When I guess is just staring at Shinji taking care of Koromaru, and but, Shinji doesn't want anyone to know that yeah, because yeah, it kind of destroys his cool guy image, and it's just like keeps on like, cutting between the two of them. Yeah, I guess just staring at him blank face. So two more things to talk about. Fucking fantastic. How do you think they handled I guess? That's the character we haven't talked about yet. Well, I, I think they did a good job again. Like she doesn't have a lot of really important plot stuff yet. here. Yeah, yeah, that but like. You know, the scenes that she is in are like good important scenes like they set up what they need to and they get to have some sort of funny more colorful moments with her like with that Shinji one yeah. where it's like she's just standing there like you know I like they do the thing where she translates for Koromaru and stuff yes. like they definitely are able to get the funny side of her across in this movie which is like really important but then also she's fucking awesome in the fight scenes oh, totally. like, like they like they're able to do a lot of different things with her in the fight scenes because she herself fights more than like the personas fighting, so she's like flipping right. all over the place and very acrobatic. Like the scenes where she's and, introduced is fucking awesome. It's great, and I also love all of the lines they give her right from the game, just her different yeah. battle lines. Mm-hmm. Like especially when she does the orgia mode thing. Yeah, that's great. And uh, it is interesting though with Igus. Igus is one of those characters in the Persona series, and I think there's a couple. I think Teddy is another one. She is a different character in English. Just flat out a different sure, character yeah. at a certain point for, for how different the vocal performance is and the philosophy is behind it. Mm-hmm. It's not as pronounced as I think the Teddy thing is. Yeah, the Teddy is much more dramatic yeah. in sort of how different that is. But I guess it's very different. Like in Japanese, like the, one of the big differences I think is the actress isn't so much trying to make her voice sound robotic. It's the writing, which is a very, very formal Japanese yeah. to the point where I can even understand a lot of it. Yeah. Um, because it's just that it is a robotic way of speaking Japanese mm-hmm. yeah like would... there's no sort of like colloquialism or anything right. in it yeah it's just like very straight matter of the fact very polite Japanese yeah and so and they play off that I think actually really well in this movie and I would imagine in the game too like I think the funniest I guess scene is they go to that festival and she tries to use her guns to do the like the, yeah, the, the, the pop gun thing yeah and then Makuta says no you have to use this and she tries it and she says this was miscalibrated yeah and like I, yeah. I did not take proper account of the quality yeah. of the wooden but it's like but she doesn't say it like that like how right. we were just doing it where we're right. doing the English I guess voice where yeah in, in English the actress like definitely puts in a lot of like weird inflection into different spots to like make her sound robotic but not like normal robotic you know like the, the performance is so nuanced Here's, in English the big thing is they don't use a filter like most yeah. actors would use a filter to make them sound robotic but no what she does is it's all her performance there's no filter on it and the big thing is over the course of the game it changes drastically yeah. and it definitely because her arc is you know she's sort of Either, like, I've always kind of read it as, like, she doesn't even, like, she starts off thinking that she's robotic, but she is still effectively human, and just, like, she doesn't fully understand that about herself, and then slowly realizes it, or she, like, literally becomes more human. There's different ways to interpret it. I would side with your first one there, yeah. But, yeah, it's definitely, like, the way that it's delivered, it's, like, her, the weird annotation and stuff like that. 
it makes it so you're not sure like how human she is or how robotic she is because it's so on that edge that yeah and then it like shifts in crucial scenes across the game yeah yeah whereas like in japanese i'm curious because again i only saw like select scenes from the game in japanese just like out of curiosity so i don't know how they fully handle that with the scope of her character so i'm curious to see what the japanese voice actress does it is something that like i love the english performance for that character so so much that it's it is disappointing that it's like hopefully they do an english dub for it just to like so i can get that side because i love that character so much in english yeah but but she's she's good in japanese like there's no oh, it's a wrong. really good performance. yeah and it's still yeah. the character like there's you know i'm really excited to see because you know obviously i guess becoming an amazing character is something that happens late in that game to me like she's always good but it's like just how important she is and the way that she's tied in becomes so like incredible in the the last month of the game when you get her social link in the game i'm curious to see how they get that across for the movie because she's obviously she's so massively important because she's the last character with the the main character at the very end you know right and it always stuns me that that social link wasn't even in the original version of persona 3 right right yeah i don't know how i don't know how that they missed that's just an amazing thing to me yeah but yeah it was added for fest which very much makes that the definitive version of that game yeah yeah so anyway yeah really interesting stuff and you know i'm really excited when they go back and remake these movies with the female protagonist (laughs) right yeah exactly when they do episode i guess afterwards yeah oh they probably will something like that sure would be surprised that would it would be interesting because episode i guess has some incredible animated cutscenes like in the game that's true like it has some fucking crazy surrealist nonsense yeah but anyway so persona 3 the movie number two midsummer night's dream very very good yeah super excited to see how they're going to handle because like my favorite stuff from the game has not even like come up yet in these movies it's like totally. the the game just gets more the story in the game gets more and more interesting as it goes on so it's like the, the fucking the shit has not been adapted yet like and they're, but they're totally getting there like I would just want to like go back and like pull the last frame from the first movie and the last frame from this movie and just like put them side by side it's yeah. like how sad this movie ends and, and how I think it's upbeat in, the other one I think it's totally intentional yeah no without a doubt yeah because the first movie ends with Makoto smiling this movie ends with Makoto dead inside yeah absolutely horrified yeah yeah and it's just, it's a yeah it's, it's a great arc like these movies are so fucking good like they're the best I wonder, they're the best video game movies which is like weird. oh totally yeah video game press should like pick that up at some point and be like hey I know that it's like only in Japan and it's like weird and hard to get access to here but you guys should know like the best video game movies ever made have been made but they're just not in our country yeah I also do think it, it's proof to me that animation is is more better suited for this kind of thing definitely I, I always think live action video game adaptations are a weird thing to begin with yeah I because can't. if you think like that roulette wheel thing is a little bit weird in this movie think if they tried to do that in live action right it's kind of like, and comic book movies have gotten past this mostly, yeah. but it would make sense for there to be animated comic book movies. Yes. We don't, I've always yes. carried that torch. I know. Ever since, like, watching the DC animated cartoons, it's like, why do you guys not get this? Comic books, animation, like, they are directly related. Like, yeah. you realize that all those comic books are basically storyboards for your movies, right? That you could just use. Right. Oh, well. Anyway, um, definitely, you know, best video game movies... How far do you think the third one's going to go? I, mean, I don't know. know That's, yeah, I'm curious. I, I feel like there's two possible climaxes. Yeah. There's either you go to the crucifixion scene yeah. in Tartarus and mm-hmm. the betrayal, but I actually don't know if that's far enough. That's 
pretty yeah. soon after the end of this movie. Or you do to the end of December and the choice with Ryoji and them like resolving at the end of that film. Yeah. And then you just do January for the last movie and you super concentrate. I would probably yeah want to have like the January section just be its own movie because that's like... I think you can do enough. Like there would yes. be enough material. That, like, and I think they would be. They would give them a lot of room to sort of like do their own stuff. But there's so much character work that needs to be done. Yeah, I think it would give them a lot of room to be very creative in how they do that. Yeah. I agree. Um, because I think also then that would allow you to end the third movie on a slight upbeat note, which I think is necessary. Yeah, it, to yeah. get you into that next one with a sense of purpose. Yeah, it would definitely you would avoid ending this third movie the same way you end the second movie basically yeah. and this movie does end with like the post credit stinger setting up Ryoji so I think it's, that's maybe indicating that yeah. that's what the next movie is going to focus on I hope it comes out on, on Blu-ray soon I, I would yeah, like to definitely. I would love it if we could get this a little sooner than next March just because yeah. the movie's already out maybe we can get it a little sooner that'd be great yeah um, but yeah who knows when, I wonder when that fourth one's going to come out I don't think there's a date yet yeah I also liked that for the stinger at the end it no longer says coming soon with two M's. They oh, fixed right. it to one M. Made me a little sad. I always like Japanese misappropriations of English. Yeah. <laughs> it always adds a little charm, but yeah. you know, like it, it really freaked me out that for the subtitles for this movie they spelled I, I guess Aegis like what her name comes from in Greek. Right. Instead of A I G I S like they do. Okay. I thought I was going crazy. I, I looked nope. at it and I'm like, that's wrong. But maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm no. Yeah, no. Because okay. like Aegis is like a Greek mythological right. thing. That's okay. why like her persona is Athena. Yeah. yeah. And then for some reason, for the subtitles for this movie, they spelled it like that instead of like they spelled it kind of the Japanese way in the games. Okay. All right. Cool. Well. Yep. That's Persona Three, the movie number two. We'll be back. I hope it isn't a whole other year, but we'll talk about number three when it comes out. Yeah. Hopefully. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So a couple more weeks until all the summer movies start hitting with Avengers. Yeah. I've got an idea for a fun superhero-related episode we can do, but we'll talk about that off of the air. So we'll All talk right. about that. Maybe I've got another Persona episode in the works, too. So lots of good stuff coming your way, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, play Persona, watch Persona, do Persona-related things. It will make Just your life better. become, become Persona. That's always been my mantra. Carpe diem, motherfuckers. <laughs>